The Fighting Films Podcast discusses films ranging from G to NC-17 rated. The three hosts discussing these films are adults who will not hold back from using bad or explicit language at times. With that in mind, this show is not censored, so please listen at your own fucking risk. Thank you. With that in mind... Yippee Kaye, motherfuckers. It's time to feel it in your fingers and feel it in your toes because this is the battle of the Are They, Aren't They holiday films. Welcome to Fighting Films, a podcast where three friends pit two films against one another that are similar to us in some way. Maybe they have very similar plots. Maybe they share directors and themes. Maybe they're an adaptation of a famous novel, or maybe there's just some personal reason for one or each of us. Either way, the discussion will be fun, so let's get those films fighting. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chris. Um, our other co-hosts are of our trio. Um, Stefan is taking a much-needed vacation this week, so this episode you get the duo. With me is... Uh, I'm Jess. I handle the social media, and I wrangle these guys and keep them on topic, but I get my own tangents, too. Indeed you do, and there'll be plenty of them in this episode, because we're, we're, we're talking about some films with some tangents. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking about Die Hard and Love Actually. And I know a lot of you listening here are going to be like, but yeah, that is a Christmas movie. Or maybe you're listening with a friend and you're going to start arguing and punching and fighting each other. So, you know, <laughs> that's that's kind of the reason why we did this. You know, the, I mean, these this, hall... this debate Go. has started more than a few fights. So and, I don't and know. It is the Fighting Films podcast. It is. Wouldn't you know it? Um, Jess, how, how are these movies alike? Um... You know, I I can't say that they terribly are. Um, they both take place around the holidays. They are both they both have holiday celebrations in them, specifically Christmas. Um, despite wherever in the world they are taking place, um, be it in L.A. or England or France. Um, but yeah, that's I think that's oh. Oh my no. There is one huge thing that these movies have in common. You know what that is, Chris? I'm not sure. It is one Mr. Alan Rickman. Alan yes. Rickman double wow. feature. That's that's how you know it's really late when I'm like looking for something deep. And no, it's it's Alan Rickman. <laughs> yes. Alan Rickman for the wonderful, amazing, brilliant actor that he was. Um, and, you know, he gave us some fantastic characters of his time. And um, he, he is very much missed. And he, he really, you know, was a chameleon when you look over, you know, his acting career from, you know, his first movie, Die Hard, which we're talking about. I mean, to start with something like that? Are you kidding me? That is right. amazing. But then, you know, the Metatron in Dogma and Severus Snape in Harry Potter and um, Harry in Love Actually, whom we'll check off on that later. But they are so all completely different characters. 
he just the man was amazing the man is a legend you know i i can't even i can't even you know say enough good things about him one of my very favorite roles of his um and i God, I can't remember the name of the character, and I'm I'm sure I wrote it somewhere in here, but uh, is his character in um, Galaxy Quest? Mm, yes. I I loved, you know, again, when you think back to Die Hard, you 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 know, you don't think of Alan Rickman as as comedic, right? No. Even though Gruber does get some you know some good beats, especially when he's playing off McLean to do in the movie, but it's a very serious role, and um, you know. It's really interesting to think he's so damn funny in um, Galaxy Quest, and he can be so damn funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're right. You know, not too many actors where the roles are so different. All right, Chris. So now that we have, you know, sung Alan Rickman's praises, what movie are we talking about this week first? First film is 1988's Die Hard. And if there isn't a movie that has been debated more over whether or not it's a Christmas movie or holiday movie for that. And it does surprise me Um, when we talk through this. I'm going to I made a list of reasons why I think it is. And I think they're pretty definitive. Um, But, uh, you know, it is still people have some strong points for why it's really not. And I can see like when it first came out. You know, maybe like, you know, holiday movies weren't, you know, like, oh, it it's a thing happening around the holidays, but we're going to push it as a holiday film. I mean, this was a summer release, right? So <laughs> it, it, it wasn't, you know, like another thing, Gremlins, Gremlins of all movies was not released at Christmas time. Really? It was a summer film. Oh, huh. It's really weird, right? It, it's one of those things now that would have come out Christmas Day. That's you know, totally a holiday like movie. Oh, 100%. But so Die Hard, Die Hard, like I said, is a 1988 American action film directed by the after this film and and before this film, the the great. And then what happened to him, John McTiernan, which we're going to talk about that. We'll check off that for later. Um, It was written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. It was based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever. And I did not know that until researching for this by Roderick Thorpe. Um, The film stars Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Alexander Godnuev, and Bonnie Bedelia. Die Hard follows a New York City police detective, John McClane who's caught up in a terrorist attack of the Los Angeles skyscraper um, where his wife works. He's visiting her um, for the holidays to go back and reconnect. Um, it also, yes, it also stars Reginald Val Johnson, William Elf Atherton, Paul Gleason, whoop. and Hart Bochner. What's the whoop? Oh, um, I am a huge fan of Reginald Val Johnson. Um, I think he's a really great actor. I watched, you know, a good amount of, um, Family Matters growing up. Oh, me too. Um, and, you know, that's where Urkel, they gave us Urkel or Steve Urkel when he got a little older and got <laughs> cool. Um, but I just, Carl Winslow was a main player on that show and it just, it was really great. And to see him in this movie is awesome. Yeah, and I've I've always liked to think of this as a soft um, prequel, even though the characters' names are different. It, I've yeah. always liked to think that, you know, the child that his wife is having is one of the kids from Family Matters, you know, and that this well, somehow saying, exists in the universe. 
He keeps saying it's their first child, so it would be Eddie. Yep, exactly. So, <laughs> and that that's that's there's our head cannon. We always seem to have one, and there it is. I, we do. And um, it'll it'll come up later, but that's um Stefan's um uh that actor for this and so, MVP and MVP. Yes. yes, there we go. Um, all right. So Stuart, the writer, you know, was hired by 20th Century Fox to adapt the Thorpe's novel into a screenplay in 1987. His finished draft was greenlit immediately by Fox. They're eager, eager for a summer blockbuster. And like we said, you know, <laughs> like now we we'd have holiday blockbusters, right? I mean, look at Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potter films, you know, all these things mm-hmm. that you know, I guess in 1988 they didn't release things in the holidays. And, and I need to look at the release dates for things, but the Batman films, the two Tim Burton Batman films were both very Christmas themed. Oh yeah. The second one. And I think those were summer releases and they came out around the same time. So that's so so weird. The only thing I can think of is that, you know, you're in the opposite season. So it's giving you cool thoughts and maybe you want like some Christmas nostalgia thoughts while you're, you know, baking in the summer sun, but I really can't imagine why you wouldn't, you know, break these out during the holidays. Except it's so for weird. Holiday burnout is literally the only other thing I can think of because the holidays are so overblown and everywhere you go, there's music and lights and decorations and everything. And, um, you know, maybe they just didn't want to push people even more into the burnout because the holiday burnout is a real thing. Oh, it's real. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's, and it, it's both the best time and the worst time of it, the entire it's... year. It, it, <laughs> it's, it, it's very strange. Right. Yeah. And you don't, you don't realize that when you're a kid, you nope. only realize it when you're an adult, but well, yeah, you man, don't have I... all of the, you know, responsibilities of it. Right. And, so to check off some trivia things for later, I put a few in the beginning here that I think are just a good prelude to talking about the movie. But okay. we're gonna go we're gonna go deeper into them. Um, of course, you've seen the list. Um, but really interesting, the role of John McClane. Think about this in terms of today. But the role of John McClane was turned down by a host of the 1980s most popular actors, including Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. Which wow. blows my mind. Um, you know, you think of Die Hard and you think, you know, I put Bruce Willis's name right next to those two guys. But McLean, Bruce Willis, was known mainly for work on television. He was on a show called Moonlighting and he was yep. known for his comedic chops. The show was great. Yeah, I actually, uh, when I was when I was a little girl, um, I don't know what that show is rated. And I probably shouldn't have been watching it. Oh, but it, was, I did. it was pretty adult. It was it was a prime time, you know, later at night thing. So it they definitely went high on the innuendo. Okay, well, I can definitely remember watching it. Yeah, me too. So. <laughs> me too. And I was really young. My parents had the Taming of the Shrew episode on video recording, and that was one of my first introductions to Bruce Willis. Mm. And it's so damn funny. If you've never seen it, they they kind of do a like alternate universe thing where the characters of the show redo Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, but in oh gosh, it's really funny. It's it's really <laughs> well done. But check this one out. So Willis, 
because of that role on television and a movie called Blind Date that he was in that actually did really well, somehow negotiated $5 million for being him being in this movie. It placed him right. among Hollywood's highest paid actors of the time, but had never been in an action film. It, huh. was, seen, it was seen as a terrible investment by industry professionals and it attracted significant controversy so much so that they kept him off the initial posters. Wow. Right? The, if you look, the, the iconic Die Hard poster is the Tanakatomi Tower with his face next to it. They did the yeah. poster that way so they could have just the tower. And then they superimposed his face later after the movie took off. That is bizarre. Right? Like, that's just, that's wild. Yeah. And to think about the overblown action films of today and how great this film looks. Even today, right? The, these effects and stunt work and everything hold up. Um, it only costs twenty-five to thirty-five million dollars to make. Huh. That uh, to, to put that in comparison, that's about the budget of the Conjuring films, and they're looked at as being some of the lowest budget, big budget Hollywood films out there. Wow. So to, in today's standards, right? So this this would be you know like a two hundred million dollar movie today. Die Hard. If you haven't seen it. Um, I'm not sure why you're listening to this episode. We're going to go through the plot. It is an, I, it is an iconic plot. Um, so it's Christmas Eve, New York city police department detective, John McClain arrives in Los Angeles, hoping to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly. There's your first reason why they know that they're making a Christmas film, even if they don't know it. What is one of the biggest holiday movie tropes? Characters with holiday themed names, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> um, She's at a party being held by her employer, the Nakatomi Corporation, which is opulent in only the way late 80s cocaine-infused money opulence can be. Like, you don't see big company <laughs> parties like this anymore. Um, no. But this was, you know, this was commonplace, right? Um, he's picked up at the airport and driven to the Nakatomi Plaza by a limo driver who Nakatomi you know, ordered to bring him there. His name's Argyle. He's another one of just the many cast of amazing characters in this film. Oh my um, gosh. I loved Argyle. I thought he was so fun. Like, he's was just, great. He's so like charming and wholesome. He's just such a damn good character. And he's a nice guy. That's the thing. This movie doesn't have like, there's, there's no mean spiritedness in our, heroes our main characters in this film right they don't need to be cynical little pricks you know like they seem to pepper in michael bay movies because the dudes watching yeah. the movie like that like even john mcclain who's like the rough and tumble strong you know willed guy he's got a heart and he's soft and you know his whole drive in the movie is because he's he screwed up and he's trying to make it up to his wife like that's that's a weird thing to have in your action movie hero Especially mm-hmm. when this movie came out, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I do go, still need to talk about Argyle though, because like, yeah, go for it. He comes in, and it's it's great. I I am glad that they have people of color, and this movie is not just whitewashed. They have you know several different people of color, and so it's it's really great. I mean, even using you know the. Was it the Takashima Company? Nakatomi. Um, Nakatomi. Jeez, where did that come from? I'm not um, sure, but I like it. 
<laughs> my son plays a lot of Mario, so when we watch the credits, I like to read the names on there. Um, but yeah, just like even using a Japanese company instead of an American one, you know, I just I think was really cool. Um, but you know, with Argyle, like we get to know who he is right away. Like he, you know, he's talking to Bruce Willis or John McClane. You know, he's chatting with him. He's like, oh, I used to be a cab driver. This is what I'm used to. And then, like, he comes up with a plan. He's like, are you sure your girl's going to be cool with this? You know, I'll just hang out down here until I get the okay phone call from you. And I'll leave my stuff or I le I'll leave your stuff at the front desk. And he legit sits through the entire movie just chilling in the parking garage listening to music and you know taking a nip here or there of the um brandy i believe it is and just yep. chilling with this giant bear that i John love McClane the giant brought. bear I like love it it's so just much. i this this character like just checking back in with him like he makes my heart happy like it's just it's a great character he's just he's waiting to make sure this guy is okay and well you know he's going through all this other stuff he's just chilling in the basement waiting for a and, phone call and check off it for later but his limo is Chekhov's limo oh yeah because it is the item that saves the day it is and that's the, we'll we'll get to that but that's really cool it's like you know a movie today people would be cynical about really the guy just pulls in there and is there the whole time but it makes yeah. sense he's just a nice guy yeah. he, remember that when you're signing the tip <laughs> you know? yeah exactly or like uh somebody called him and he's like yeah i'm supposed to be you know on my way to las vegas in the morning and it's like you know, he has no other rides for the night. You know, I'm not sure how long the drive from L.A. to Vegas is. I think it's like, I don't know, six hours or something. Something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, I think to Arizona, it's like eight. I I don't know. I'm terrible at this. I'm coming up with numbers off the top of my head. No, though, these <laughs> things sound legit from, from what I've heard. So. But it just, you know, he's, he's you know, he's chatting with a friend like, no, no, I'm just chilling. I'm just hanging out whatever nice. and he's just being a nice guy he's awesome and so he waits in the garage just being awesome and yep. mclean goes in you know awkwardly makes his way through the party um meets mr nakatomi who you know asks him if he enjoyed the ride um i'm not i don't think his name is mr nakatomi but the guy who runs the nakatomi company and nakatomi. um what was that I said I thought he was Nakatomi. Yeah, it, it's it's in here somewhere. We'll 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 get there. But uh, you know, he he thanks him. Um, you know, and Takagi. He, Takagi, there we go. And you know, he him and him and Holly have you know a little tiff, which sets up you know their relationship of you know they obviously miss and love and care for each other. But um, there's also a lot of tension there because strong woman gets job, strong cop wants to have his job, and there's obviously some foot stomping and whining going on there between you know who gets to uproot their life for who and all this other stuff. And they do a really good job of giving us a lot about their relationship in a very little amount of time. Yeah. Well, um, pause button real quick. Yeah, of course. 
So Holly did not know that John was coming. This Correct. was a surprise set up by her employer and coworkers. Yes. Like this, this, I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like they know a ton about her life. And she's going by a different last name at this point. So things are not, or they don't seem to be on the most friendly of terms. And when they surprise her that he is there, like, she's shook for a minute. But as a true professional, she shakes it off and she's like, oh, Okay, let's get you cleaned up then. And, like, you know, goes into that problem-solver mode. But, like, this boss woman, like, just is gobsmacked by this pretty much. Right. Like, and she, you know, there there was an expectation that he'd be around for the holidays, but not here at this party. And yeah. she was like, I never got the call that you you were flying out. Like I I'm very, very, very surprised. And and I do love that about her as a character again for 1988. Like you said, she's basically second in command here. This is not she like is. a Which desk jockey. Off on that for later. Yeah. She's not a desk jockey, right? That like this is like, you know, her career is way better. Yeah. As far as bringing home the bacon than John's not to say that, you know, John's not, you know, kicking ass at his job too, but check off for later also. And especially to the other films, he also seems to be a bit of a loose cannon. That's never yeah. really going by the book. <laughs> which uh, is actually, also... um, sorry. Uh, something I noticed, um, throughout the film, like, people ask what his wife does. And at the beginning, it's a very short answer. But by the end, it's, you know, a longer, more detailed answer instead of like, oh, you know, she just started this job after we had our kids and it blew up. Right. You know? Yeah, he 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 had a, um, like a chauvinistic, like, lack of respect for it. Just almost yeah. like, almost like that's what, how I'm supposed to feel. Like, I'm emasculated, right? And yeah. then he was proud by the like, end. And I think that's Like, really my cool. job is more important than hers. Right, right. Yep. So, yeah, so <laughs> she gets him cleaned up. And it's because of this conversation they have in turn of events where she's called back out to the party and he's still in there that when our terrorists show up or our um, German radicals or check off for later, not quite necessarily <laughs> what they seem um, led by Hans Gruber by the late great Alan Rickman um, and his heavily armed team, including Carl and Theo. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone in the tower is taking hostage except for McLean. And I really like, you know, the note I have here originally is he slips away, but it's a little more important that the movie opens up yeah. with him on the plane, obviously being terrified of terrified of flying. I love <laughs> all of the character bits Willis gives to McLean because they wouldn't show Arnold Schwarzenegger doing this. No. They wouldn't show Sylvester Stallone doing this. They wouldn't show them being flawed. And that's what makes yeah. John McLean so great. He's terrified of flying. Obviously also probably terrified of coming home to see his wife and his kids. As you mm. know. But he's sitting next to this guy who, you know, you get next to a guy on a plane who's just a little bit too nice. And the guy tells him about this thing. Hey, when you get where you're going, if you want to shake the flight problems, I know this. Take off your shoes and make fists with your toes. 
And yep. he kind of like laughs and brushes it off. Like that's kind of silly. But then it's the first thing he's doing when he doesn't have his shoes on. And when he's be- alone. When he's alone. And because of that, he doesn't have shoes for the rest of the goddamn movie. Yep. And I think that's amazing. Like- so, so actually, yeah, two, two things I wanted to um, point out. Um, I, this is, this is actually adorable that he took the time to do it, um, instead of just brushing it off, like, oh, that sounds dumb and being, you know, the tough guy or too, too cool to do that. Um, I think that if Arnold Schwarzenegger had starred in this, um, we already have enough, not enough, but a lot of people with accents right and i i think our main character having an accent and um the quote-unquote bad guys having an accent um would have been a little difficult i think that's one of the uh things that drew that line um is that you know the the bad guys were you know had accents and were of non-american descent right exactly Uh, and it allows them to fool people yeah checking that off for later as well um (laughs) with uh you know and that that's a very important thing for them because they've obviously been planning this and learning how to fit in you know um it's, it's very interesting so Gruber yeah. and his henchmen, they're, they're here while McClane slips away. They're here posing as terrorists. So this, this you know, as we learn throughout the night, is less and less um, that they are, they are terrorists. And we can check off that for the trivia for later as to why. That was actually the director's call in pulling that back a little bit. Because mm. for a summer blockbuster, you know, terrorism is a little bit too dark. For, and, and I agree for yeah. a summer blockbuster. So they're just, they're just common thieves. They're really damn good common thieves, but so I, sorry, I have to make note. Um, when I was watching this, as they were all walking in, there's a guy with like fabulous hair. I'm yes, like, yes. He he got Fabio. Like Fabio is a henchman now, and then there's a guy with um glasses and like shaggy blonde hair. I'm like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yep. Like, <laughs> like these characters are just. They just look, they have similar attributes to other famous people. And once you actually like see them close up, they're obviously not that close. But when you see them, it's just like, what? So like the guy that's like going through the wiring looks so much like Jeffrey Dahmer. It's, it's a little offsetting for me because it just that's the first thing I thought about and maybe it's you know the murderino true crime you know person that I am but (laughs) (laughs) just Fabio and you know Jeffrey Dahmer and you know the the genius of their group this um black man with glasses and you know he's smart because he has glasses he's got glasses and he wears nice sweaters yes you know he he looked a little like malcolm x and so it just it's just this was all like pinging in my brain as they're walking in and i'm like just looking at this group like who else do i see it just it was so funny like until they started shooting people and then yeah 
oh, and they and and that's that's the other thing. Like, right, they're they're brutal. Yeah. Like, you know, he's here to steal six hundred and forty million dollars in untraceable bearer bonds. But I love how quickly they show how in control. Gruber and his guys are right. The way that yeah. they're able to calmly get the security guard replaced at the front, they close everything down, you know, they get the place locked down and he takes Mr. Takagi in and is having a, you know, business conversation, mm-hmm. but uh, you know what? No, I need the damn code. So I'm going to count to three and blows his brains out. And yep. you'd think, okay, they're screwed now. You know, the, you've seen how many other action movies where the, the villain flies off the handle and does this and then they're screwed. Nope. Yeah. He's got this. He's got this brilliant computer cracker, safe cracker. Um, yeah, and he's calm. Who's just calm and is like, "Yep, take care of it." And he's yeah. really worried about the last security thing he needs to get by. And we'll check yeah. that one off for later because that's kind of a cool um, reveal as to what's going on there. Well, I just, but, it, I just thought it was so cool that you know he's sitting there like, "Okay, give me the codes. Give me the codes, or I'm going to shoot you." You know, and like in other movies we've seen, they, you know, hold the gun up to his head and threaten him. Give me the codes da, 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 and go crazy. And nope, you know, this is your last chance to give us the codes. I, You know, they're going to change the codes in the morning. And he has all these excuses to not give him the codes. And he's like, all right, bye. Shoot you. Yeah, like, whatever. He's not <laughs> fucking around. And I love that throughout the night, every time, you know, things start going wrong, nothing in the surrounding world phases Gruber because yeah. he's thought it all, because he's thought it all out. The yeah. only thing that phases him is McLean. It's the only thing that catches him off balance. And I think that's great. It's like the one thing he didn't think about that. There'd be somebody inside that was smarter than him. Yeah. And that's. That's what it, this was so great about this movie. Um, well, and that, so, you know, they they thought they rounded everybody up. Like, and there's this basically mouse running around in the building that they don't know who it is or what they're doing. And it's just this wild card that they can't kill. <laughs> right. So, so they're alerted to McLean's presence um, because he reacts to the shooting of Takagi and they hear him. And so they send Tony after him. And I believe Tony is the uh, Dahmer looking guy. um, If I'm not mistaken, because he's the brother of Carl, who's Carl's the one that looked like Fabio and Carl gets, Carl gets very angry um, at what happens now because McLean kills Tony and takes his weapons and radio, which he uses (laughs) to contact the Los Angeles police department who believe it's a prank. Oh (laughs) my word. This this whole, Oh my God. The police. Oh my gosh. The police in this movie are beyond frustrating. Yeah. The only good police officer in the whole movie is, is Reginald Val Johnson. Yeah. L like, like I just, I cannot wrap my head around this. Like, I understand the police might get prank calls, whatever. But Christmas Eve, people are busy. Most kids aren't going to, you know, call the police to fuck with them. And if somebody's calling in with a bomb threat over, you know, a CB radio, more or less, um, or a walkie-talkie, 
So most kids aren't going to do that. They're saying, you know, oh, you can get arrested for this. He's saying, come arrest me. Come, yeah. Just come to this just, building. Just be here. Yes. Just, and, I, I don't care what you do. Just come here. <laughs> and, and, and you think, okay, they're sending one of their sergeants. So, okay, they at least take it a little bit serious, but we find out they think they're sending, you know, a nobody. They're sending a guy who we find out is a desk jockey that hasn't even been out on the streets. And and I really like wow. this about Al Powell's character that we find out as the movie goes, because it's very telling to things we're dealing with today. But it's a guy who's like stoic and a good version of this. He shot it a kid is. accidentally. He shot yeah. a kid accidentally, and it killed him. Yes. I never um, want to draw my gun on someone ever again. That word is so powerful. That line mm-hmm. is so damn powerful. And we'll check off on that for later. Oh, yeah. But I have to say, they didn't call him out strictly. They put out a call to see who closest to the um, the towers and he just happened to be, you know, a few blocks away. Because he was not... on his way home picking up snacks for his pregnant wife. And I love that. He was picking up, like, uh, ho-hos and, like, <laughs> it was just, this is great. Yeah, and then the cashier is like, right, for your pregnant wife. Thanks, Oh, Fabia. yeah. Yeah, thank, but... thanks, thanks for the movie's minimal but very upfront fat shaming. Thank, thank yeah. you, 1980s. Yeah, and it's, like, really, and, you know, that... That actually comes up a few times in Love Actually as well. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, oh. I we'll we'll check out on that for later. But like just because he's a big guy doesn't mean he's downing all these snacks. Like yep. just because you're fat doesn't mean you eat everything and you're unhealthy. The other the other thing, nineteen eighties and basically movies in general, who in their right mind in the real world does that? Right? Do you know what I mean? This is the thing, like you know, one, most people, um, and rightfully so, aren't going to screw with police officers. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Unless, yep. and th- maybe the idea is that this is supposed to be the neighborhood's place he always goes, so the guy gets him, so maybe there's some ball busting. But yeah. it, it never comes off as feeling authentic. It comes off as just being a screenwriter wanted to make a shitty fat joke. Yeah. And, and um, like, honestly... With the amount of snacks that he bought, and I don't, I don't blame him because you know I have a child myself, and you have, you know, a couple yourself as well. You have been around a pregnant woman, like oh yeah, she gets, she gets odd cravings, very strange cravings. You know, macaroni and cheese at three o'clock in the morning was one of mine. Yep. like it just, it's bizarre. What comes up? Um, my favorite food when I was pregnant was cream cheese wontons. Like, I could not get enough dairy. Like, <laughs> it just, it just, it's so wild what pops up. And that's why you see women, like, dipping dill pickles in chocolate pudding. You know, it just, it's whatever your body feels like. But going on, if, okay, even if, Al were going to eat all these snacks himself. Um, after watching this movie and knowing the character of Al, like he could put them in, you know, a bag in his trunk and eat them over a week, right, or whatever. But somebody who sits down and 
eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, especially super unhealthy and sugary, but very tasty snack foods, um, has a problem, has a disorder, whether it be a mental disorder, a health disorder where they never feel full, um, any number of things. So basically just being fat is not, you know, a sentence to say, oh, they must eat crap food all the time. Right. And it just, it, you know, in 2021, where we are now, I'm glad that a lot of those stigmas are gone. Um, Unfortunately, we still see some of them in movies today. Deadpool. But... yeah. Oof. It just this is this is my PSA, I guess, and I know that everyone on the show feels this way that fat phobia is not good. It's not cute. It's not funny. And you know, to think this way of people with you know heavier bodies or larger bodies is not okay. So you know. If you think that way, you should probably wonder why and try to uh, maybe look at changing your habits. Yep, absolutely. So it anyway, doesn't add anything. It doesn't add anything either. You know, it's it's no. a cheap joke. It's a cheap attempt at a joke. Yeah. You know? Yep. Eh. And, and, you know, there's a thousand other ways we can make fun of police officers, too. But that's a story for a different podcast. Well, and in the 80s, you know, that was a running joke throughout movies, TV, life, whatever. I had a plus-size aunt who uh, was heavy throughout her entire life. And, you know, she got made fun of really bad in school. And, you know, like she, to the point where she hated high school. And, um... It just, it, it's not, it's not a thing. Like, this doesn't need to be a thing. And it's sad that it was. Absolutely. So, McLean now, um, they've been alerted of his presence. They're chasing him around. Al Powell is there. He's circling outside the building. He's radioing in that he sees nothing wrong. Nothing's amiss. It was obviously, you know... A prank is what he's thinking. And why wouldn't you think this at this point, right? You talk to the security guard downstairs. You look around. Everything looks fine. You're not hearing anything. You're not seeing anything. So well, he even got word from the station, like, we think this is a prank call. Right. Just go check right. it out anyway. So so McLean is freaking out, right, up, mm-hmm. in the build, up in the building. He's killed a bunch of terrorists. He now has the C4, which it's like, okay, what are these guys planning here? He's got their detonators. Um. And the thing that I love about watching McLean take out each of these terrorists is he's, I won't say like he, it's not that it's disgusting him. He's mourning it. It's like, you know, he's, he's a cop. It's like, there's, there's a, I, you know, he's always like, what am I, what am I doing here? You know, I'm upset that I killed somebody. You can see it in his face, even though he's defending himself and these guys are bad guys. And I like that about the character. There's a realism to like, I don't want to hurt people. You know, it's not like just running around, just guns ablaze and killing everybody. And he definitely thinks quick on his feet and is like, you know what? I got to alert this guy somehow. So tosses the body of a terrorist 
out the window onto Al Powell's car <laughs> with one of my favorite lines in the film. Welcome to the party, pal. Yeah. It's just such a good line. Um, <laughs> another funny tidbit. He and Reginald Val Johnson did not meet each other in person until the scene when they meet each other at the end. Huh. It was intentional to make their um, characters to make, to make that scene have real raw emotion of like, Oh, this is the guy, <laughs> you know, I, I okay. think that's really cool. Um, and actually they did that uh, two or three different times in the movie with different characters. Yes. So yep. that, that was, that was really interesting to learn. Yes. Um, and uh, the, Al Powell, um, Reginald Val Johnson's character, having a pregnant wife is also one of the uh, checkoff for later reasons why um, this is a Christmas or holiday themed film, even though it's propagating the Christian Christmas thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's the, you know, new new birth, new life, a baby yep. on the way. All holiday or Christmas themed things have that in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now we're introduced to a guy that we met earlier um, doing cocaine in Holly's office when uh, John and her first come in, Harry Ellis, who is Uh, the epitome of shitty 1980s scummy businessman. Yeah. And he plays it so well. Um, He Uh. attempts to negotiate with Hans Bubby, as he calls him, (laughs) which, which was, um, uh, improved, yep. <laughs> which I think is really funny. And um, so, um, Alan Rickman's like face when he's like, "What?" He was so quizzical when this rando guy walks in. Um, that reaction was genuine. Yeah. You know, like who is this person? Yeah. WTF? Why are you? What? Like, I I could kill you. Why are you calling me booby? What the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, and so this guy goes in there thinking he's the king shit and um, <laughs> goes through this negotiation process. He's got um, McLean on the phone. You know, he's acting like, you know, him and McLean are best friends, which I got to give credit to Ellis's character. I was thinking he would be the type of scumbag that would blow that McLean and Holly were husband and wife. Because remember, she introduces mm-hmm. herself to Hans after he kills yep. Takagi as yep. G- as Gennaro Mm -hmm. and that's a very intentional you can see that she's she's no slouch either right she's her her and McLean are perfect for each other because they're both quick on their feet Mm -hmm. you know she she comes in and is playing Gruber you know like like a violin herself you know yeah um and Ellis at least in this point does not give her up but tries to give up McLean as his friend because obviously it's like, fuck, let him have McLean and then I'll have Holly, right? Um, yeah. But McLean's on the other end of, no, you don't know how dangerous these guys are. Stop this, Harry. And of yeah. course, when McLean um, doesn't give himself up, Gruber kills Ellis. Um, and this sets the police off downstairs. This is like this McLean guy, whoever he is, is a loose cannon. He just lets somebody die and Mm -hmm. Al's fighting for him, you know, like, no, there was nothing he could do. And I Mm -hmm. love seeing McLean, even though Harry's a piece of shit, seeing McLean mourn over the thing to Al. Al, you know, there was nothing I could do, Al. And he's like, I know, I know. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I just, I thought that's really cool. Um, Okay. But we got to talk about Ellis for a sec. Of course. He starts the movie being a shithead. Like, oh, yeah. 
he's hitting on Holly, like, hey, you know, let's let's go out for a dinner, da 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 da. And she's like, it's Christmas Eve. I have kids. Like, no. And then just you know, he when John McClane comes in and Holly is surprised, he just you know is singing their praises, singing her praises. And oh, did you see her watch? She got a Rolex. Chekhov's watch. Yeah, uh-huh. and like <laughs> it just. He just is so smarmy and gross and the epitome of a disgusting, slimy businessman, salesman specifically. Um, it's just, ugh. And then, like, he, you know, does some more coke when he's sitting with the hostages and he decides, oh, I'm going to get up and negotiate. And he goes in there and is like, oh, yeah, I want a coke. And, you know... I, I don't remember if he had, like, something to eat or something, like, small. But, like, he just, he has this, you know, he has them bring him a Coke so that he can negotiate with them. And it's just like, oh, my word, you are so do, full of shit. Do we ever actually hear him ask for the Coke? Because I always, I always thought in my head that it was a funny sight gag that they might have said, what can we get for you? And he goes, get me some Coke. And they brought him a Coke instead of cocaine. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I didn't even put that together. That is because really he kind of he kind of double takes at it. Like, ah, oh, fine, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I thought you were gonna say like it's just something they did for people that came in, but I'm like, no, they didn't do that for the boss. Right. So, no. It, no. It, Oh, I just, did not put that together. It, it's clever. Um, if that is what it is, it's it's clever writing and clever it editing, is. right? Because oh, that's funny. Because it's it's something I didn't really notice till this time. Um, <laughs> so so all this goes down. Of course, Gruber's a little you know shaken by his guys starting to die, um, but he's not losing his cool. You know, still with the guys, like even the FBI showing up, he's kind of like, this was all part of the plan. It's just a little sooner than we had originally imagined. You know, the police send in their freaking Humvee tank and Gruber's guys just start blasting it with rockets. So they're not oh. screwing around. Yeah. Um, oh, and the searchlights. Yeah. This, and they shoot out the searchlights oh. and it's, it's Al, Alan McLean are like a thousand steps ahead of the rest of the police. They're just bumbling. Yep. And Gruber, you know, um, goes to check out the explosives on the roof because he's getting a little panicky. He doesn't have his um, he doesn't have his detonator anymore, and he's trying to get it back from McLean. And McLean got a hold of his plastic explosives. Yes, like all of it. Yes, and um, this this again is another one of my favorite bits. Um, is McLean encounters Gruber, and you know I. I, I lost it in the notes here. I don't know where I put it, but it was earlier where the I have a machine gun ho 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 happens, right? Uh that was just after they took out Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. Like. Right. Um, and I, I, and... I it's it's one of my favorite this is why it's a Christmas movie things too, and I forget, but it's so iconic. But yeah, backing up a teeny tiny bit. One We're of gonna the... rewind a little. Yes. One of the <laughs> uh, one of the clever things that McLean does is Every time Gruber and them feel like that they've got one up on him, like shooting out the lights or shooting the rockets or the thing, he always hits them with another cat and mouse thing. And yep. I love the guy. He sends a guy down that he's killed with a sweater on that he's written. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Yep. And he sends him down the elevator. All the, you know, uh, hostages see it. And 
um, it just sets all of them off. I love how off balance he gets these guys. Now, remember I said Jeffrey Dahmer, when he killed him, was Carl's brother. And Carl is bullshit. And Gruber keeps stopping him from going after and just killing McLean. Like, he's trying to keep his cool. But this guy, this is basically the Arnold Schwarzenegger character of the movie, right? If, if Arnold was a villain, it'd be this guy. He's he's just loud and insane. And I, I do love the bit where he's freaking out to go and leave and check on something. And Holly goes, <laughs> well... John must still be alive. They're like, how do you know that? (laughs) Because there's only one person I know that can make somebody that upset. (laughs) Just like, that's awesome. I I love that line. I got to say, to be fair, to be fair. um, In all fairness, uh, Gruber is actually just saving his henchmen from getting killed pretty much yeah, absolutely he he's recognizing even though he won't admit it that mclean um M- mclean is is has his number yeah right? oh yeah which is why he goes to check for the explosives on the roof and i i love the quick thinking on gruber's part here because mclean encounters him and gruber puts on this texas accent Oh my gosh, and, yes. And makes and and he does it it's such a brilliant piece of acting cuz he's I mean it, I mean we we know that Rickman's a great actor, but it's hard to act acting. Well, and that's the thing when um rewinding a little, they were in the boardroom and they shoot the big boss guy. Um I don't think yeah, no, John McClane didn't see Hans Gruber. Like right. he he only saw like the henchmen and stuff. Correct. So he doesn't know what And he only knows Gruber what he sounds like. like. And yeah. that's what's brilliant about Gruber here is he, you know, oh I, I escaped, you know, I got away and oh help me, help me, save me, you know. And so he he has him come with him and then like you're sitting in the audience and watching this for the first time, you're like, shit, McLean, like, come on. But no, he's never met him, and he's doing a great job, even to the point where McLean gives him a gun. And mm-hmm. as soon as McLean turns on him, Gruber drops the accent and pulls the gun, but finds out the weapon is unloaded. So yet again, McLean is still one step a freaking ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I loved that. Um, but Gruber is saved by the intervention of the other terrorists. Um, McLean does escape, but is injured by, oh, the shattered glass. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Shoot um, the glass. Oh. It's so yeah. iconic. Yeah, um I guess uh you know that that kind of uh back and forth between McLean and Gruber um they hadn't met before either. Oh, and that's great. Uh he was so put off by uh Alan Rickman's accent that he I'm trying to find the um specific quote but he he said something like oh you should be on tv or something like that like great accent you should be on tv with that accent yeah exactly such a good line yeah there we go um oh never mind um yeah so it just you know it's it's really a testament to alan rickman and how amazing he was yeah, it's just such a great scene. So, so McLean gets away, but he is in rough shape. This is the iconic pulling himself through the doorway with the 
trail of blood. It's just so intense. Like mm-hmm. I, and that became the iconic of this series, right? McLean is nearly dead by the end of all of these, um, mm-hmm. outside the FBI has come and taken control. Um, and this is where Gruber, um, you know, he says they're going by the playbook on this one. Like they're just, yeah. Eaten, I'm um, eaten out of their hands. You know, they're eating out of my. It's just, they they turn off the power from the main grid, which has to shut off ten city blocks, which unlocks the electromagnetic lock, and the Christmas music kicks up, and he gets <laughs> he gets his bearer bonds. Yep. Um, and on top of that, also to keep up the um, to keep up the facade that he's some big international terrorist, he asks the FBI for some crazy demands. Um, I want, you know, these random people from all along the world that are locked up to be released. And when his guys look at him with a funny face, he goes, I read about it in time magazine. And you're just like, that's hilarious. Like so convincing. He has their names down and where they're being held. And like, it's just, it's, like you really believe him that he really wants like these guys let out and they're part of, you know, a bigger operation. And then, you know, once he's off the phone, he's like, I don't give a fuck about them. Right. Like <laughs> it's, it's so just, perfect. This uh this the Gruber character is so amazing. Like So now so exactly. And now Gruber's plan begins to come to light. <clears throat> he's asked for helicopters. The FBI is actually sending gunship helicopters, but he knew they'd do this, but still wants to make it look like the building explodes in him escaping and all of his guys and all of the hostages that would have been able to tell anybody what he was actually pulling would all die and they would escape. Um, McLean realizes this um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, starts his plan in motion to get up there and to get everybody off the roof. Carl, who is now enraged by the death of his brother, Tony attacks McLean and it would seem is killed. Uh, we're going to check off that one for a minute. Um, Mm -hmm. Gruber then catches a news report by Richard Thornburg um, about McLean's children. This this is another thing. And, and again, I get it that he's supposed to be a scumbag reporter, but going to the house and going to the housekeeper, you know, I, I could call IMS. And I'm like, oh, oh. Jesus, come on, guy. Oh. My you know word. what I mean? I Come on, guy. So hard. And don't worry, that. he 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 gets his comeuppance for sure. Yes, he but does. but now after all of that, Gruber realizes, oh no, Holly Gennaro is Holly McLean, and sees mm-hmm. the picture in the office that she had put down or mm-hmm. McLean had put down. I forget which one because I think the guy was snorting coke off of it, if I'm not mistaken. But that's oh. <laughs> a oh sick bastard. I did um, not make that connection. Right. Um, so the hostages are up on the roof. Um, Gruber keeps Holly with him collecting the bearer bonds. McLean drives the hostages off the roof just before Gruber detonates it and destroys the approaching FBI helicopters. Meanwhile, Theo, our, our brains of the operation retrieves a van from the parking garage, but with Chekhov's limo outkicks Argyle, who is now aware of what's been going on and couldn't escape because all of the gates were down and crashes in to the uh, to the ambulance that they were using as their escape vehicle and punches out Theo. Awesome, yep. awesome bit by Argyle. Hell yeah. 
And he's able to follow the events on the car radio because he hears on the news report that they're using CB to communicate. So he's able to lock into the frequency and find out exactly what's going on. Well, and he's, um, throughout the movie, he's hearing all of this. Like, so the awesome. entire communication. So he's just, like, sitting back hearing everything. It, it's it's incredible. It, the the This movie is so finely tuned. Um, McLean, who um, is lost a lot of blood and is almost dead. Uh, funny aside, the, the book they're adapting, the character was actually paralyzed by the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. Thank God they left that out or, you know, thankful that they left that out. Should I say um, he finds Holly with Gruber and the remaining henchmen. McLean surrenders to Gruber and is about to be shot, but the camera pans back and you see that McLean's gut. Um, a gun taped to his back. And this is where Gruber looks at him and goes, what is that you said to me earlier, cowboy? yippee ki motherfucker. And <laughs> McLean, realizing he's about to get shot, pulls the gun, shoots the henchman, shoots Rickman, or shoots Gruber. Gruber is about to go out the window, but grabs Holly's watch. Chekhov's watch. There you go. Yeah. And is now hanging out the window. What I love, love, love about what happens next is this, I think, still to today could be the best villain fall out a window of all time. Oh, my word. And it's because Rickman agreed to do the stunt. Again, he's not the stunt man that falls the, you know, 70 some odd feet. (laughs) But he did a 21 foot drop with the camera panned on him in slow motion. And they dropped him on one. I thought it was two. It could one or two. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I've got conflicting reports. I always used to say two, oh, but I read it. But, okay. but either way, it was intentional. The director and everyone were in on it. And the look, they, him. They look they got out of him is 100% the look of someone that has just shit their pants because yep. they got dropped 21 feet without knowing it. Yep. And Rickman apparently was bullshit until he saw the daily and went, okay, no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, so Gruber's taken out. I do love the terrible, terrible cops. <laughs> you know, oh. I really hope that's not a hostage. Really, that's the only thing you're thinking about right now. <laughs> you're such yeah. A what are the okay. optics on this going to be? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We need to talk about the cops and the FBI. And oh, they're terrible. The they're chain terrible. of command. Uh, my that actor. <laughs> Is actually um, the character played by Paul Gleason, and that is Richard. Of course, Orberg. I'm already. Thank you. I'm I'm already in his filmography on IMDb, um, our uh, our quote unquote Bible here at the Fighting Films podcast. Um, <laughs> but this man has an amazing amazing stint of movies under his belt and he is best known for playing um the principal in the breakfast club um you know you mess with the bull you get the horns and uh richard vernon and he's actually um played that role in a number of other movies and shows and parodies um or similar characters basically being, you know, the hard ass. And in this movie, he's just such a dumbass. Like, well, he's terrible. 
he's, he he's might... still the hard ass and he's still trying to go with protocol and buy the book and this is how we're supposed to do things but it's like would you shut the hell up like you do not need all this pomp and circumstance like just how about you listen to the guy who is first on the scene and who is talking to the guy in the building who called you in the first place and like i get he has a couple of valid points like oh you can spot a fake id bartenders can spot fake ids and yep. it's true you know they can but through the entire movie he's coming up with excuses and second guessing mclean and all of this and it just you know um uh al is just sitting there like with his hands tied like you know, I know Roy, you know, I, this sucks, you know, I, I'm telling them, but they're not listening, Roy. Um, and Roy is the name that McLean gave to, oh, really? I didn't, I didn't know that's what. Yeah, it comes from his conversation, um, I, when, um, Gruber's asking him what his name is. And he goes, I'm not going to yeah. give you, and he goes, well, what, you know, you can't, you know, ride off into the sunset like you're John Wayne's and all this stuff. He goes, I was more of a Roy Rogers fan. And so that's where he comes oh. up with Roy for later. Yeah. Dang. Okay. Um, but yeah, so uh, Paul Gleason has been on a wide variety of things, actually. Um, he started acting in 1962 and he has been all over. Uh, the gambit and it looks like he's done a number of things in as like a police officer or you know a part of you know police or military work um he's been on Dallas and magnum pi and you know riptide and he was on a couple episodes of the a team in the 80s but he was also in a tv movie ewoks the battle for endor um, <laughs> so he's he's smart he you know is on other things he was on an episode of the 1987 beauty and the beast you know probably as some police officer um you know role but, you know, he was in Miami Vice and he's just been in a ton of stuff. He's done voice work for a number of shows. Um, more. Oh, nope. I was going to say more re more uh, recently, but I, I saw 21 Jump Street. But he was on an episode of the TV series, not the movie. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like he was in uh, Not Another Teen Movie, basically parodying. Richard All Vernon. of these roles, yeah. Yeah, Richard Vernon, you know, and he's just, again, he's been all over the gamut, and he's, you know, had, like, a, a spot on so many shows. Um, it looks like his last acting role was in The Passing as Detective Sanders. Interesting. Yeah, always a detective or a bumbling yeah. fool of a police officer yeah well he just he's always been like the you know stand up straight hard ass you know type of character but yeah he's been on you know the guardian and dragnet and cold case and just this whole you know it's it's his look you know yeah 
he has a certain look and is a certain way and it's what he gets typecast for and like he was in um he was he's best known for the breakfast club not another teen movie trading places and die hard um, oh yeah so you know he's he's definitely been around um he did pass away in 2006 oh. uh, at the age of 67 in burbank but um he you know he that he, he is my that actor and you know you would definitely recognize him if you've seen you know breakfast club and things like that um he's he's been around um so you know rest awesome. in peace um and he did a great job in his typecast role yeah he did he he definitely in this movie um he he does a great job making you believe that he is just a piece of crap. Yeah, <laughs> he's just really good at it. Well, I mean, and, he is he's the head of where he is because he follows protocol and goes by the book and blah blah blah. Yeah, but I mean, each each circumstance is different, you know. So right, and even uh, I, I I like the the back and forth between him and Powell too because Powell <laughs> is also trying to follow protocol. You know, you know. John, go find a safe place to hide. You know, don't be a hero. You know, we've got this. But as soon as he catches on that McLean could be what he thinks he is, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, no, 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 no. We got to like, this guy could be the only saving grace we have. Like we yep. could lose all of these people, you know? And that's also what, you know, the other guy is afraid of, but he's also worried about the optics and how it's going to look. Yeah. And Powell doesn't care about that at all. Powell's just trying to save lives. Yeah, and, and doesn't it take him like two thirds of the movie to find out he's a New York police officer? Yep, yep. And even then, they're still discounting him. Like, oh, oh yeah. Despite what they do in New York, this is L.A. Like, yeah, right, oh. right. Oh, like, like that changes anything. Yeah, um, like, aren't you supposed to be, you know, the boys and the brothers in blue band together? Blah blah blah. Like, just because you're on complete opposite ends of the country doesn't mean that things are that different yep so we cut back down to the street um at this point um and you know the the ambulance has been taken out um gruber has been killed all of the other terrorists have been killed and we thought carl was dead so McLean and Holly and everyone are walking out and the news is coming up and, you know, the mm-hmm. cops are there and, you know, we've got, uh, the, the guy we were just talking about is about to get up in McLean's face and out pops Carl dun dun da, and mm-hmm. Carl gets his brains blown out by, by loud, loud, amazing sound work on the bullets. And the camera does this amazing zoom out and focuses on who's behind the gun and there's al powell al powell reginald val johnson who said he would never draw his gun on someone ever again who saves mm-hmm. mclean's life yeah. and i love love that story beat it's and you can see it in his face that he's like i you know like, like it it's both uh pride thing like i'm still good at my job i can still do this but also he has that look of just still fear of, you know, this is a dangerous thing. Like I, yeah. I didn't want to have to do this. And I, I just, the character is so nuanced and layered for, you know, a guy that would be comic relief almost in any other movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's die hard, you know, they go get into Argyle's car and they drive away and yep. 
Christmas music kicks up. Yep. <laughs> so um, I, I had a, a few notes, but I think we covered them. But, you know, the big things that I have a machine gun now, ho, ho, ho. The broken glass sequence that McLean has to walk through is just so brutal. It's such an amazing set piece. Um, I love this little bit where one of the uh, terrorists is waiting you know, for the FBI to come in. And while he's waiting, he's sitting in like the newsstand and he just reaches under and grabs a crunch bar. Right. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. I and mean, it, there's this whole like line of candy at this snack bar. You know, why not? It was great. And just one of my absolute favorite things about this movie and something that I think sets Die Hard apart from almost every other action movie, especially the ones that came before it, is that McLean isn't perfect. And things don't no. go perfect for him. But no. you see him think on his feet and you see him put two and two together and react. He, it feels so damn natural to have that guy in this role mm -hmm. rather than a person that you're going in expecting him to be perfect and bullets are going to bounce off of him and he's always going to get away. Yeah. Um, you, nothing bounces off McLean. In fact, he I'm surprised he still has all his limbs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I was going to say, do you want to hit some trivia points? Um, I was going to mention um, the thing that stood out to me, and this is this is going to say a lot for um, just the movies that I've watched with Bruce Willis, but the first thing that I thought of when we see him in the beginning is Bruce Willis has hair. You're right. <laughs> I just, he's been bald for so long. Like, I know, you know, his hair was thinning and this and that, especially in, like, Death Becomes Her, uh, when he has hair in that as well. Um, oh, I just a great movie. It is. Oh, that movie's fantastic. But I just, I've seen so many movies where he's bald that I'm like, oh, yeah, he had hair at one point. He had hair on top of his head. He's a brunette. Like, it just... <laughs> It It's just, you know, it's one of those things that, again, he's just been bald for so long. Oh, yeah. Like, it just, it's literally the first thing that popped in my head. Not he's flying, not he's trying to <laughs> stuff a giant bear into a baggage, you know, um, pod above his seat. Like, no, nope, he has hair. It's amazing. So, yeah, it just, it was, it was, like, it's so silly to have that first thought. But I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, he, you know, he didn't start out his career as bald. He has hair in this. So, yeah, just, I thought it was really kind of funny and silly that that was, like, my first thought of this movie. <laughs> That's awesome. No, we, we hit a lot of them. Um, yeah, but do, do you want to mention some key cool trivia facts that pop in something that Stefan would normally do? But uh... yeah, um, I I thought it was really cool. Um, actually, a few points on their setting. Um, the uh, Nakatomi Plaza is actually the headquarters for 20th Century Fox. It's awesome. And the company charged itself rent for the use of the unfinished floors. <laughs> so it just, it's, it's kind of silly and funny that that's, you know, what they did. You know, they, they used what they had. 
which, you know, made such a low budget work. One of the most iconic things in Die Hard, so much so that they find a way to get him into one in every single Die Hard film, is Bruce Willis's iconic um, undershirt. You know, he's got a tank top um, that he always ends up in. There were 17 undershirts in various stages of dirt and degradation on hand for Bruce Willis to wear during this film. Oh, that's wild. One of them is in the Smithsonian. Yes. I've seen it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I didn't get that far when I went, but I did see uh, some ruby slippers in there. The Smithsonian is incredible and exhaustive and huge. Oh my gosh, yes. And there are, <laughs> what, seven different Smithsonian buildings out there? Yep. Like, oh my yep. word. The numismatic section is really cool, too. Yes. Uh, coins. So, uh, collectible coins and old currency. Um, yeah. Um, actually, what I thought was really cool, um, Bonnie Bedelia, actually... <laughs> Uh, to say her last name, Bedelia, reminds me of Amelia uh, Bedelia. Yep. I don't know if you read that as a I kid. Did. Um, having a child on the ASD uh, spectrum. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to think about now. Like, as a kid, um, when you read Amelia Bedelia, you're like, oh, she's silly. She doesn't understand directions and need thing, needs things spelled out for her. But having a partner and friends and a child on DASD spectrum. It's like, Oh, I get this. Um, And so, sorry, that was just like a little side uh, tangent. Um, But Bonnie Bedelia, who played Holly, uh, John McClane's wife in the film, um, the first thing she thinks of when anyone mentions Die Hard is Alan Rickman. And they became really close friends during the movie, and they ate lunch together every day. And uh, they they talked about how lovely and gentle uh, Rickman was in real life. And actually, another piece of trivia I read was that um, Alan Rickman would flinch every time a gun went off because he's so not used to it and it it would surprise him every time and i guess there's uh like especially in the shot where um the big boss gets shot um i guess if you look at him you can see him kind of flinch a little um but yeah it just you know that that kind of goes along with his you know how sweet you know of a person he actually was it's awesome yeah. And I hear that with like lots of film sets he's been on is there's people that he just befriends and it, it, it's just really cool. Yeah. Um, so something that I think is really cool. I love behind the scenes stuff and I, I love things that end up in the movie that weren't how they were supposed to go down. Um, there's a scene where McLean's character falls down an elevator shaft. It was actually a mistake by the stuntman. He was supposed to grab the first vent um, and he slipped and continued to fall. They used the shot anyway and edited it together with one where McLean grabs the next vent down as he falls. So it actually adds tension to the scene. So I I love that. You know, as a stuntman, that must be really cool, right? To be like, you know, a flub turned into, you know, this iconic thing from the movie, right? That just Mm -hmm. adds to the character. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's really cool. Like, it's it's cool when they can actually use, you know, accidental stuff like that. So, um, not 
not saying that you know um all all uh improvs and whatnot are no. a good thing to use no no no, no. <laughs> uh, quentin tarantino but uh yeah um that that was definitely an interesting one um so uh actually i thought was kind of cool uh something um so when john McClane is running through the glass shards in his quote bare feet um he actually has like these specialized rubber shoes that are designed to look like his own feet but if you actually watch closely his feet change sizes <laughs> like the as, hobbits yeah as the episode or as the scene is going and so it just it's it's interesting and funny and i mean obviously like you have to protect you know bruce willis's feet um, I've, I've had glass in my foot. It hurts very much. Um, but yeah, it just, it was, it was interesting. Like I, I would be interested in actually like seeing like a little featurette or something or something of those feet shoes, like right. see how thick they were and whatnot. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> something I thought was really cool. Again, these, these behind the scenes things, um, we talked about during the episode how all of the effects looked so good, especially the yeah. explosions and explosions are a hard thing, to, especially at night, you know, they're a hard thing to really get, you know, well, especially with nowadays digital effects, they kind of seem to be overdone and things, but director John McTiernan revealed that almost all of the exterior shots of the building with explosions were real full scale explosions that they set off around the actual Fox Plaza. Oh, Wow. It's like you wouldn't be able to get away with that at all. No. I, the, the movie Blown Away, which was filmed and took place in Boston, I remember they they did a, they blew up a boat in the harbor in Boston and didn't tell anyone they were doing it. Oh, no. Think about that. Think about now. Oh. <laughs> right? Oh, they didn't no. tell anyone they were doing it. It's like, why wouldn't you tell anybody? Well, they wanted to get aerial shots of crowds reacting. Mm-hmm. So they just filmed the real people reacting around. It's like, oh my god, yeah, you definitely could not get away with that type of guerrilla filmmaking today. <laughs> uh, actually, we'll check out on that for my movie as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right. Yeah, that that's just. Oh my goodness, no, don't do that. You're gonna you're gonna actually like give people heart attacks and kill them. Like, not cool. So I guess George Takai wanted to play the role of Takagi. Um, and John McTiernan really wanted to cast him, but Takai's agent messed it up. I'm not, I'm not sure how, but I mean, um, George Takai would have been really cool in that. It would have been cool. Um, but the actor who played Takagi, James Shigeta, was actually a really well-known Asian actor um, through. Uh, actually, he's Hawaiian-born, um, but he was the biggest East Asian U.S. star that the country had known for decades. So I thought it was really cool that, you know, as us Americans do know that about, you know, George Takai and how amazing he is, no doubt, um, James Shigeta uh, was actually, you know, a really well-known actor as well and to be part of this movie that's awesome yeah um 
a name that folks might not be completely familiar with the cinematographer of this film, Jan de Bont. Um, he went on to direct, he, he had, a, he had a run of basically making some of the most iconic action films of all time. He made oh. speed. He made, um, twister <laughs> and he made the first tomb Raider film. Um, he also made the haunting <clears throat> and, uh, hasn't really made much sense really, but, um, Jan de Bont, uh, was the cinematographer of this film. They brought him in because McTiernan wanted the film to not look like American action films. He wanted it to have a European sense of camera movement and structuring, which he said was far more interesting to look at. And it gave mm -hmm. scenes motion. Um, Michael Bay overuses this trick. Um, yeah. in, in, in his cinematography, but this film certainly does not, um, it, it's actually quite, um, useful. And I think it really gives this film good momentum throughout, but Jan de Bon actually got trapped in an elevator shaft and it oh. was the inspiration for the uh, elevator sequence at the beginning of speed. Oh, okay. All right. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, so I guess a lot of the movie was um improvised yes um and like the the script kept being rewritten and twisted around so much that you know just a lot of it was improvised and it honestly you can't really tell and especially those you know um saying you know Hans, booby, and stuff like that. Just <laughs> and the real reactions, just you know, is what makes this movie part of what makes this movie great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow, there's just so much great trivia for this. There um, is uh, an interesting thing I just wanted to remind about the book. Um, the book um, was a sequel to a book called The Detective. And there was a film made oh. out of the book, The Detective, starring Frank Sinatra. And because oh. of that, Frank Sinatra actually had first dibs to turn this role down, even though he would have been in his 70s when this film came out. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, th I thought that was really cool. Um, okay. when, when they decided to not use Sinatra, they changed a lot of the book into the story that you see here, but the action beats are almost line for line the same they just um the book i guess you know was pretty dark and had a lot of negativity especially about the terrorists and stuff and they dialed that back to make the film more approachable oh, um because of that the poor writer of the book um thought this would you know be his big break and he was going to get a big payday uh said that he wouldn't get paid till after the movie came out, but since they changed the title and the book didn't really get anything but a little credit at the beginning, the book didn't sell. Oh no. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a bummer. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's that's really a bummer. I mean, most of the time, um, at least I think when, you know, we find out that a movie is based on a book, you know, at least some people like to check it out. So I don't know. That's, that is wild. Um, so, you know, the line that everybody knows, yippee ki -yay, motherfucker, um, <laughs> which is actually used a couple of times in this movie does show up in all five of the Die Hard movies. Um, and 
the uh there's a gunshot that masks the fucker part in the PG-13 cut um and in Urdu it translates to here eat this <laughs> <laughs> which is fitting yeah depending it, on how you say it it really is and uh actually the line was voted as the number 96 of the 100 greatest movie lines by premiere in 2007 um personally i think it would be a little higher but that's just me <laughs> nice oh a thing i forgot to mention at the end of the film uh, i'm realizing as we're seeing here we forgot to mention that holly punches the news reporter she does. I thought that was great. Yes, a... and... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I just thought that was great. Because, you know, yeah. he's, it, he nearly gets the two of them killed. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that reporter. Like, that reporter is almost on the same level as Ellis, the businessman. Like, once, once he says that to, you know, the the nanny or you know, caretaker of the house. I just, oh. Yeah, he's, just, a, he's a scumbag. He's, so, he's disgusting. I'm I'm going to give one more piece of trivia and then for sake of time, um, jump forward, I think. Um, okay. This one, I, I love this one. Um, after Hans Gruber shoots Takagi, we see Carl hand a dollar bill to a surprise looking Theo. It's a great little <laughs> aside and it was 100% improvised. Yeah. And yep. I, I just think that's great. He, they, the two actors just decided that there'd be a bet. Oh, okay. And, and it, it's so funny. Um, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. So we've we we've already gone through the cast in detail. You know, I don't have to go back through them. Um, I was gonna say, uh, you know, we we got to do your your that actor. Did you? Um, who was your MVP for this film? Um, my MVP is Holly General McLean. Wonderful. Um, you know, I think she did a really great job uh, of holding, kind of holding down the fort, basically, and being a representative for the hostages' well-being. Um, and you know, knowing kind of, you know, to keep her cards close to the vest, if you will. Right. Um, but like there was a pregnant um, coworker of hers, and she's like, "Hey, this woman is pregnant. She's not about to burst, but she's pretty uncomfortable. Can we, you know, let her go sit on a sofa in somebody's office?" And I thought this part was really cool. Um, instead of being like a complete dictator and being like no nothing for her um hans was like well can we bring her a sofa and that would be that would work like we want to keep everybody together um but we don't want them to be horribly uncomfortable <laughs> it's so, it's an odd it's an odd double standard right because you get that very humanistic thing but you still yeah. find out he's planning on blowing them all up <laughs> yeah but i mean I don't think he expects, you know, this woman to come in and be like, hey, can this person have something nice to sit on? And actually or, makes sense. Like, you yeah. can tell it like, he's like, oh, crap, right. And it, it it's yet another thing that he wasn't anticipating. Yeah. Yep. Or like uh, later on, she's like, 
hey, just a heads up, um, you might want to start letting the hostages have potty breaks or you're going to be dealing with a huge mess. I and love like, that. Why, why should he care? He's going to blow them all up anyway. Well, he's human. Um, going potty is, you know, despite all of us being animals, everybody poops. I yep. mean, they, they, wrote, they wrote even a book about it. They wrote several books about it's it. Great. But everybody has to potty. So, you know, at least give them a chance to get up and stretch their legs and go potty. I want to see a diehard film that's all Holly McLean. Yeah. Yeah. And he's um, and he's and he's the one that can't do anything stuck on the other end, you know. <laughs> yeah, um and actually that that reminds me of the conversation we had back in the Tremors episode of like having Reba Wilson come back and be like the kick-ass fighter who saves the day. Like that would be I think a really great addition to this film series i agree is to have holly come back and be the ass kicker because with that punch at the end where she uh she punches the reporter um you know we can see that besides everything being calm cool and collected with her in the face of danger like you know she's still able to kick someone's ass awesome so who were your that person and mvp so my that person and and it's cool it isn't an actor this time um oh i i i picked the director john mctiernan and it's because okay i feel like that name doesn't necessarily ring with everybody that hears it but coming into die hard like john mctiernan made predator right oh. predator is like you know, in the top five of the most remembered of a very memorable career still going of Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Right. And, um, it's just crazy to think he went from predator in 1987, right into Die Hard in 1988. But then these movies, the hunt for red October medicine, man, last action hero, Die Hard with a vengeance. He comes back for the Die Hard third in the trilogy. Die Hard 2 was actually directed by Rennie Harlan of, oh. Deep, Blue, of Deep Blue Sea fame. Well, um, we know that name. Yep. And check off for a later episode, Mindhunters. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there you go. Um, and then he also did The Thomas Crown Affair, which is uh, which I love that movie. The remake, actually, of The Thomas Crown Affair. Um, the 13th Warrior. The Then things start getting a little hairy. He did the remake of Rollerball. And um, he did basic, which is fine. This just not really iconic. And that was in 2003 basic. It was, it was Samuel L. Jackson. Um, It was like a, 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 um, a recovery mission, like a military movie. And it's pretty cool. It's just, it's not very iconic. Like it's just kind of like a by the numbers kind of movie, but it's fine. But he's got a movie that claims in pre-production called Tau Seti 4. I don't huh. know what it's about. There's not a lot of information. But it'd be his first film since 2003. So that's, oh, wow. okay. that's a big deal. Um, and my MVP, um, and, you know, we've been gushing about him this whole time, is is Alan Rickman. And there's, you know, not much more than what we've already said other than for a first film are there more iconic first films 
I don't know, you know, Not roles many. for an actor. He, he, you know, is just, he's, he's a British actor doing a German character who does American accents, who's a wholly iconic supervillain, right? Oh, yeah. That's been, that's been copied and mimicked forever. Yep. Right? That, you know, even so much that in Die Hard with a Vengeance, the villain in that movie, they made it be his brother. That's the with oh. a vengeance part. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was really cool. Like, the, the whole thing is is a very, very pointed, specific thing. Um, You know, talked about it a little bit, but, you know, Alan Rickman is always the MVP of the films he's in. Um, His uh, take it. More or less. Yeah, you know what? He just always seems to stick out. You know, um, yeah. Even when he's secondary, you re- you remember him. You know, he's oh, never uh, yeah. he's never a uh, oh yeah. Alan Rickman was in that. Wow, it's always like oh yeah. Like eh. I loved him as Judge Turpin in the Sweeney Todd film that Tim Burton. Uh, did. Yes, he's so evil in that, and um, so different. Yeah, again, like yeah. just all of his characters are so different, and he's always amazing. His voice work is Marvin the Paranoid Android in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, <laughs> Sheriff of Nottingham, again, you know. Uh, yes. What's great is that he, he definitely did get typecast into villain roles, but not one of his villain roles is the same. No. Um, then, you know, Severus Snape, who is, you know, anti-hero villain um, savior. He's all these things, right? He's just such a complex character, and I love it. You know, and he plays it to a T, Mm -hmm. you know, he, you, you can tell he just gets the character, right? Yeah. Like, um, it's just wonderful. Um, again, we already talked about galaxy quest, the Metatron in dogma. (laughs) Um, he's, he's, he's just great. And, and I love him and we're going to be talking about him in another movie soon. Hey y'all it's Stefan. I'm, uh, reporting today from the lovely state of Texas. And, uh, yeah, just thought I would still get my opinions in for this week's episode. For Die Hard, my, that actor is the great Reginald Vell Johnson, uh, best known as Carl Winslow from Die Hard, or not Die Hard, Family Matters. And, yeah, he played a pretty similar role in Die Hard, kind of a prelude to his character. I wonder if he actually got the role. Uh, from that movie. Yeah, either way, he did great. And he's also my MVP of the movie because there are people behind the scenes, you know, that do uh, the work that are, you know, there's for everyone on the front line, there's at least one person behind the scenes coordinating everything. And that's exactly what he did. I wanted to hit a few points really quick. But before I said it, are you on the this is a holiday film or not, Jess? I am like um, my sister-in-law actually uh, this is her favorite holiday film Um, and we've had conversations in like um, my partner's geeky friend group whether it is or not and she had a my sister-in-law had a holiday party where she showed this like it just I I totally think it is I think both of these movies are um, pretty much any movie that takes place around the holidays and celebrates any one of the holidays in 
December, January area, um, you know, would be considered a holiday movie. Right. More or less. Right. And exactly. And and I agree. I think it really is. You know, it's it's got the staple of what's become holiday film sense. You know, take yeah. out the action, take out the action. This is just, you know, a, a cheesy Hallmark Channel movie, right? Guy coming home for the holidays to estranged wife, you know, has to go through a rigmarole of things to to prove himself and realizes, you know, that she uh, she was actually, you know, um, in the right the whole time and he shouldn't have been a jerk, right? That's what happens in all of those films in one way yeah. or another. Um, well, and I mean, not every holiday movie has to be a Hallmark movie. Right, like, right, exactly. That's not how life is. Right. And um, like I already said, Holly McLean with the festive names, um, the writer of the film and producer both maintain that it is a holiday film. McTiernan okay. says it was never intended to be, but accepts its place as one now. Mm, okay. And, and Fox, the production company, says it's the greatest holiday film of all time. So <laughs> um, it, course- it is pretty damn good. <laughs> but they only said this recently in a 30th anniversary um, interview. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, so with, with all that being said, what is the critical reception for Die Hard? Exactly. And right before that is where we'll, we'll cut Stefan in as well. Yep. But yeah, the critical reception. Oh yes, of course. Um, so like I said at the beginning, expectations for Die Hard were low. I can't even imagine thinking that now, but expectations for Die Hard were low. Um, marketing efforts were omitting Willis's image. Again, can you even imagine that now? Like, um, but a, just wild. Right, right. And looking at the film the way we do now, in its initial release in 1988, it received mixed reviews. Criticism focused on the film being too violent, its plot not being what people were expecting. And a lot of people didn't like Willis's performance. Really? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, but not it, the walk in and shoot him up, but right. it's still pretty good. I think it's because, again, it's that preconceived notion that he wasn't the standard action movie person and they were all over it for that. Um, mm-hmm. But McTiernan's direction, again, this was only his third film, and Alan Rickman's performance were always praised, even in that initial run. Good. Um, Roger Ebert gave the film two stars. And, you know, he he later um, rebuked it and changed and said that, you know, he was wrong. But he right. said it, um, it, it's just crazy. He wrote on a technical level, there's a lot to be said for Die Hard. It's when we get to some of the unnecessary adornments of the script that the movie shoots itself in the foot. Willis remains in constant radio contact with a police officer on the ground who tries to keep his morales up. Then the filmmakers introduce a gratuitous and unnecessary additional character, the deputy police chief, who you and I just spent time, even though he's a jerk, praising. <laughs> Eber thought he was completely unnecessary. No, he was totally necessary. Right? right? He's, and... he's basically saying, I mean, he's honestly a villain, more or less, just on the American side and hindering things on the ground. By going by the book and doing, you know, all these things and going against what is being told to him in the first place. Right. Exactly. So defying the critics and these predictions, Die Hard grossed $140 million on a $35 million budget. Wow. Becoming 1988's 10th highest grossing film and the highest grossing action film of that year. That's amazing. 
Yep. It received four Academy Award nominations. I believe they were all technical, but still. <laughs> and it elevated Bruce Willis to leading man status and made oh, yeah. Alex Rickman a celebrity for the rest. He, he just started his career, right? Yeah. It has been critically reevaluated and is now considered by all critics as one of the greatest action films of all time. Uh, duh. Right. It, there, there's, it, it's just crazy. The film not only was a successful action film, but it revitalized the entire genre due to its depiction of McLean as a vulnerable and fell and fallible protagonist in contrast yeah. to the muscle bound and invincible heroes of the period. Well, I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at, I mean, take Stallone and Sylvester, um, like you look at the characters they played in the eighties between the Terminator and Rambo, they're just these super beefed up walk in, shoot everybody infallible characters and right. you know this was so different like it it's honestly a relief to see exactly and the, the film has also been a good stepping off point for shows like ours and other retrospective commentators analyzing thematic concerns within the film including mm -hmm. vengeance and how it's handled masculinity and how it's handled gender oh. roles and how they're handled yes. and american anxieties over foreign influences this movie is praised as being right on the line of okay are they writing it to to promote these bad things or is it kind of trying to be progressive with them and you can see both and I think that's yeah. what's cool. We talked about with Holly and the way the police are and, you know, the for a movie about, you know, where one of the main things is about terrorism, it manages to avoid a lot of bad ethnic stereotypes. They somehow yeah. avoid a lot of it. Not all, but they somehow, you know, there's a few Pearl Harbor jokes at the expense of the Japanese guys. Yeah. And but, but they, they managed to do a pretty good job. Um. The film produced a host of imitators. The term Die Hard became shorthand for plots featuring overwhelming odds. Um, you know, Die Hard on a bus, as Jan de Bont's <laughs> speed a few years later was called. Um, but hey, and I, like we said, it, it created a whole franchise, video games, comics, merchandise. Oh, yeah. It has been deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress. Wow. Die Hard was selected for film preservation in 2017. Um, wasn't, uh, what was the one with Justin Long? A Good Day to Die Hard, was yes. it? Yes. Okay, yeah, um, didn't that one kind of, like, revive Bruce Willis's career? That one, oh, sorry, that one was, um, Live Free or Die Hard. Yes, oh, that did. Yes. That did, unfortunately, he had to go and make the next Die Hard movie after that, which is abysmal. <laughs> but, but Live Free or Die Hard is great. I really yeah. like that one. Um, it did. That was the PG-13 one where they had to do yippee mother when he shoots the guy, <laughs> which I always thought was kind of funny. But I mean, okay. you get one F-bomb in a PG-13, so I don't really know what what all that was all about. Um, Maybe they used it somewhere else. And Exactly. And I think it's because the movie was super violent, and they thought either we'll lose the violence or we lose the F-bomb, and they... They chose the violence, which, okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, it is a diehard movie, right? I mean, um, we've, we've talked about how, you know, smart P some PG-13 movies have to be, um, right. especially in, you know, action and, say, horror or thriller genres. The color, the color of their blood. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see red blood pooling, but you can see black. That's, um, that's why in <laughs> Evil Dead 2, um, Sam Raimi made the blood multicolored. 
actually oh, was to okay. get so it wouldn't get an NC seventeen, which I oh, thought was oh, kind oh. of funny. Um, the oh, reason yeah. the reason I chose to do that that quick um, rundown of the critics and how they changed is because using something like a Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb score for a film made before nineteen ninety nine, it's kind of swayed by people retrospectively looking back uh, yeah. because those websites didn't exist when this movie mm-hmm. came out. But the Rotten Tomatoes score definitely depicts how the film is thought of now, where it has a 94% from critics and a 94% from audience with 250,000 plus ratings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the critical consensus is its many imitators and sequels have never come close to matching the top thrills of the definitive holiday action, holiday action classic. I will say I feel like Die Hard with a Vengeance comes very close to being as good as Die Hard. Um, that movie's a little more mean-spirited, which, um, you know, and it has an 8.2 on IMDb. I think with Die Hard being so different from typical action movies, they... They tried to be, they tried to hold back on a lot of things. Whereas, you know, once they got the ball rolling with, you know, with a vengeance, they, they kind of let loose a little more. It's, it's kind of the same thing they did with Fast and Furious 1 and 2. Like, it just, I don't know. That's what it kind of feels like to me anyway. Yeah. Well, no matter what the critics say, because I don't listen to them, um, <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie. Right. So that's that's Die Hard. And now we're in our next film that not everybody thinks is a holiday film or should that be considered totally one. Is. Um, just take it away with Love Actually. Okay, so I decided to pit Love Actually against Die Hard because these are the two most thought of and fought about movies when you think of non-holiday holiday movies. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, here in 2021, um, Love Actually gets a lot of hate. Oh, yeah. And um, some of it is undeserved, and some of it I can understand, and we will check off on that because we do definitely um, address some of it while I'm going to be going through it. Um, Hopefully, you have seen this movie. Um, It did come out in um, 2003, uh, November of 2003, which made it pretty much perfectly in time for the holidays. Um, it You get people right at the beginning of, you know, the holidays. And so they're not feeling that burnout at all yet. Um, and I just, I really love, love actually. Um, I love movies where the characters intermingle and, you know, you have many stories going on that intermingle and, um, you know, have have more or less, you know, uh, similar themes. Um, and so this rated our film lasts two hours and 15 minutes. It's a comedy drama romance. Um, and again, came out in 2003. And it just, I have loved this since the first time I saw it. Um, I could watch this. Any day, anytime, anywhere, and still love it. Um, 
this this is my favorite adult holiday movie um because it is definitely not for children with a rating no. of honor no 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 <laughs> um especially with you know naked people in it uh, um but yeah i just i i enjoy this movie so much and the theme of love and it it's not just loving your partner it's you know showing love for your friends and showing love for your family and oh it just and you can experience it at any age and it's just it's wonderful and amazing and you know love will always win over hate you know i mean hating literally cripples you yeah Uh, and so you know just just to have this movie about love and so many different facets of love is just just fantastic um so love actually is a 2003 christmas themed romantic comedy film written and directed by richard curtis um it features an ensemble cast composed predominantly of british actors British actors, uh, many of whom had worked with Curtis in previous film and television projects. Uh, Mostly filmed on location in London, the screenplay delves into different aspects of love as shown through 10 separate stories involving a wide variety of individuals, uh, many of whom are shown to be interlinked in As the Tales Progress. Um, The story begins five weeks before Christmas and is played out in a weekly countdown until the holiday. Uh, and followed by an epilogue that takes place one month later. Um, and this summary was brought to you by Wikipedia. We all use it. We all love it. And you should send them, you know, that $5 that they ask for. Absolutely. Because, you know, they they are very helpful. And we greatly enjoy them. And, you know, if it weren't there, we'd have to do a lot heavier work. Um, so, yes, support your internet's wikipedia um otherwise we'd be back to encyclopedias in book form and those were treacherous to go through my grandma had a set oh god yeah (laughs) oh so many so many papers and reports and sightings and bibliographies and yes copied 10 cents copy pages from the library my grandma's encyclopedia took up like two entire bookshelves like they were they were amazingly put together books they were just it i it's one of those things where the minute we had a thing that wow the firmware it can be updated on the fly Mm -hmm. really i don't have to you know cite that yeah sorry my encyclopedia still says the berlin wall is there yeah Yeah, like, if you didn't have the most recent up-to-date encyclopedia, like, your report would be out of date. Like, it just, it's... I used to always joke um, when uh, GPSs first came out, (laughs) you know, because you'd have to, like, pay for the CD to get in the mail to update the GPS before we all had, you know, Google Maps, and it was just always up-to-date. It was... (laughs) Having it around Boston or any big city is is a dumb idea because the roads are always changing. Yep. It can never be up to date. <laughs> like, yep. It's just going to be impossible. Yep. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going in this movie, going on in this movie. And, um, another thing I really love about it is it changes, uh, character lines or character plots so often that it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. And if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss something and you're going to get a little lost. Um, and despite the length of this movie that, yeah, it's a little over, you know, an hour and a half. Um, it just, there's, there's never any time to be bored. No. Um, I, like, it just, it goes by so quickly or like, you know, I'll be sitting there and I'm like, oh, did they get to the, you know, cue card scene yet? Oh, this is that late in the movie like you know it just it's just kind of a you know blur when you think about it like it's it's a little hard to place where everything is because everything happens so quickly um so uh i i'm actually i sprinkle trivia kind of throughout you know like um the plots um, but this was actually the most rented DVD in the UK in 2004. I mean, so, it has, it has every living actor in the UK in it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. watching, watching an uh, Edgar Wright movie. You're just like, where, what, yeah. <laughs> Who, who's going to show up next? Yeah. I mean, and the most random people. Um, and you know, that's, that's my next point is this cast. Holy buckets, this cast. You know, Bill Nighy, Gregor Fisher, Colin Firth, you know, Liam Neeson, Emma Thompson, you know, Martin Freeman, um, Andrew Lincoln, Kieran Knightley. Like, that's just uh, at the top of the page. There's yeah, that, so that's many. just one act. <laughs> yeah, so many amazing actors in this movie. Um, I mean... And oh, this cast is huge! Like this cast is freaking huge, you know. Um, huge guy. I mean, even Hugh Grant and Laura Linney, and there's just there's so many. Like this is the blockbuster, you know, bang out of you know movies. If romantic it, comedies were a cinematic universe, this is the Avengers. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, you've got actors from all over. You know, you've got American actors, you've got British actors, you've got French actors, you've got Spanish actors, you've got just people from everywhere. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. Um, one moment. Um, yeah, they're just, there's so many actors in this movie and it still works like somehow yeah um chris this was your first time seeing it right yeah um and you know i i love all kinds of movies and i was worried that i because because i i now know after watching it that i know all of the references from this movie but didn't know they all came from this movie (laughs) um but I was worried that I'd be one of the people that would be cynical about it. You know, that wouldn't like, cause it's not necessarily a genre that even though I love movies in the genre, it's not one that I'm just going to love no matter what. 
you know, and mm-hmm. I was worried while I was watching and I'm like, oh, this is going to be the point where the movie's going to lose me and it's just going to get too saccharine or it's going to get too cynical or, you know, it's and, and instead I just sat there going, I see myself in all these characters and I'm my heart is breaking for the ones whose hearts are breaking and my heart is full for the ones. And I'm like, this movie just it, it, it took me over. And, and I, and I ended up loving it and, um, you know, it it really, it, it kind of, it, all it needed was that opening bit with Billy Mack and (laughs) I just went, oh, I don't even know what I'm about to watch, but whatever it is, I'm 100% (laughs) down for this sense of humor. Cause that, that song, this is shit, isn't it? Solid gold shit. (laughs) This movie's going to be great. (laughs) Yeah, um, so I think I'm going to do this um, a little differently than things I have done before. Um, I've actually been playing, and this is not my name for it, this is the name in my game. I have a solitaire app on my phone, and I've been playing Chinese solitaire. Um, And so basically it's where you go through and you have to, like... Like, if you think of each um, line of cards or each, uh, oh, goodness, um, set of cards, like the spade, the heart, the club, the diamond, um, if you think of each one like a rope, they're all, like, mixed up and knotted and things like that. And I, I think of that, that, you know, resonates in my mind with this movie, is that the the plots are all just intersecting and intertwining and all of this craziness is happening um and so i am going to go through and dissect this movie for you i am going to dissect each plot for you and um we're going to talk about the characters and their plot um before moving on to each other and uh you know i think i think this is probably the the best way to go about this because i would get real confused if i tried to go straight through the movie <laughs> right and it, and i was going to say i i think the way you have it organized is great so i'm really looking forward to this okay so um we talked about the amazing cast from you know alan rickman down to um uh, Sam, the kid who plays Sam. Uh, oh, he Thomas. was just wonderful. Yeah, he was actually 13 at the time. Like, he he looks so tiny. Um, but he's adorable and did amazing in this movie. Um, but the first lines in this movie um, kind of kind of put you in a state that you think you're going to go in, you know, this, this movie's about love, you know, we're, this movie, you know, we're talking about love, um, this movie is all about love, um, and at the beginning of this movie, it opens where, um, basically, uh, you see people coming in, and running up to people and greeting people at Heathrow Airport. And um, we talked about this earlier and we're check-offing back to it, is that they use real people. They just sat at Heathrow all day and recorded 
And when they found somebody that they, you know, liked their reaction or wanted to use it, they would run up to them and be like, hey, you know, we're making a movie. Can we put this in there? Please sign this release. So it just all of these um, people at the beginning and end that are greeting people and so happy to see them at Heathrow Airport, it's all real. Um, all the joy and love on their faces in seeing the people um, that they're there to see, you know, is, is just really great. And they're all real people. And uh, it opens with saying, uh, with uh, Hugh Grant as the prime minister, uh, saying, whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed, but I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often, it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the, plane, when the planes hit the Twin Towers, because this was made in 2003, so it was a very recent event. Um, when the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you looked for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. So it just, it's, it's just kind of that heartwarming feeling leading you into the movie. And then it opens with Bill Nighy <laughs> trying to, trying to record a new version of Love is All Around. Um, and love actually is all around. And the word actually is spoken 22 times throughout the movie. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start with Billy, Mac, and Joe. Uh, and talking about their relationship. Um, so Billy Mac is a decades uh, old rock star, more or less. And, you know, he's he's... Getting into his senior years, he's in it, you know, his mid fifties, and um, you know, they're trying to record and they're trying to make a comeback by by making this absurd Christmas song um, that he's trying to like shove extra syllables into and all of this, and it just it's it's silly, and he knows it's silly, you know, it is a silly, ridiculous drivel of a song um and actually billy mack and his manager joe are the only characters in this movie whose storyline doesn't directly connect to any of the others yep so um all of the other main characters are linked via family friendship or work but i thought it was really cool how they intertwined like Billy's radio interview or like his TV spots while he's campaigning to get this, you know, holiday album in number one, you know, and he's doing all these interviews and not giving a shit, basically. <laughs> <He's> like <laughs> So many great things. Yeah, he's just, you know, he does a, a radio interview and, he, you know, the guy's like, 
oh, you know, what can we ask you? And he's like, oh, I'm an open book. You know, ask me anything. And he's like, who's the best shag you've ever had? And he's like, Britney Spears. And he's like, really? He's like, no, not really. She was rubbish. And <laughs> <laughs> it just, that's, that's, that's his character. Like, it's just, he, you know, he's trying to make a comeback here. But it's, he's just, he's so outspoken and ridiculous and you can even see it in his wardrobe like at one point he he's known for wearing like these loud shirts in like a single color suit or like a striped suit and at one point he walked in i'm like did he just come from austin powers like what happened it's so perfect Oh my gosh. And so like he does a TV spot like on you are like on TRL back in the day. And um, he, you know, kind of makes fun of his competition. Um, and We've then got little pricks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this boy band blue. Um, I've I honestly have never heard of them. I don't know if they were made for the uh, the movie or what. But, um, you know, and eventually he gets the news that he's being outsold five to one by this boy band. And in a TV interview he's doing, he says, well, you know, if I outsell Blue by the holidays, I will, you know, play on TV stark naked. <laughs> And makes this promise. And, um, you know, eventually it turns it around and he wins. Um, and and uh, he, actually, does. he does. <laughs> um, there's there's a little clip uh, towards the ending um, that we'll check off on for later. Um, but when he wins, he's surrounded by this number of people at his house and his manager's there. And, um, I mean, basically, his manager has been there through the entire ride. They're good buddies. Um, every time, you know, Billy opens his mouth in an interview, you know, his manager is just shaking his head. No, you're you're committing, you know, public suicide. Knock it off. Uh, this isn't, you know, presentable. This isn't what we're trying to put out and... Billy's just like, oh, I don't give a fuck. I'm an old rock star. Who cares? And so their their personalities are so different. But they've been together for so long. It just works. And so, you know, um, they, they're having a holiday party. And Billy gets, you know, the call that his album won. And right afterwards, he gets a call from Elton John. And being invited to his holiday party. And uh, so he goes over there. And then, you know, a little while later, he shows up at his manager's house. And his manager's like, what the hell are you doing? Why aren't you partying with Elton John? And Billy Mac, you know, pretty much says, you know, yeah, there were you know, fame and fun there and lots of half-naked birds willing to, you know, bounce on my cock and whatever, but it wasn't where I wanted to be. And uh, it turns up that, you know, he loves his manager. 
his manager is basically his best friend, you know, and his manager's like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, 15 minutes at Elton John's and you're gayer than a maypole. Like, I love it. <laughs> no, you know, he's not, but it's, it's not where he wanted to be and celebrating. And I just thought it was, you know, a great rap for those characters. Uh, more or less. You're, the, you're the love of my life, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> now let's get drunk and watch porn. Exactly. <laughs> you know, he's saying, you know, I, I'm not romantically in love with you, but, you know, we are, we, I love you as like a best friend, you know, we've been together for so long, you know, this is where I want to be. And it's just. Here to a movie from 2003 normalizing guys telling each other they love each other. It, yeah. It's it's awesome. Yeah, it it really is. And despite them not being linked, um honestly, this is where most of the comedy in the movie took place. Um I feel and I feel you know, it was intertwined at such good points to kind of give you a break from, you know, some heartache or, you know, feeling bad for a character or, you know, something is not quite right or, you know, jumping between the same sets of characters, I feel their relationship was just kind of a comedic break. Right. It, it it added the levity the movie needed because as as we're gonna find out, it it goes into some some heavy stuff with yeah. some of these characters. So yeah. I, it was always good to come back to Billy Mac is for the reminder that, you know, there's just some fun to be had here as well. Yes, and the lovable and incredible Bill Nighy, who oh. we have talked about before. It just this is, you know, another you know, faction of Bill Nighy and his acting prowess. And he just, it was, it was great to see him in this after seeing him in, you know, the Cornetto trilogy and just playing such a different character and being just outspoken and loud and in these brash clothes and just so different. It it was really great. And it was his- such a fun character. His physical performance. Um, <laughs> and again, that's, that's you know, something he is known for. But I had seen less stuff. You know, I had, you know, a lot of things I had seen was just his voice. You know, where yeah. his, he, he's, you know, he's a good talker, right? But He has a very the, distinct voice. The movements in when he's doing the song and everything at the beginning, like, you know, you're recording this, no one's going to see this, but like, he's got his like Steven Tyler stage presence, like, you know, and I'm like, (laughs) he gets this character 100%. Like he's just going for it. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I looked at the DVD scene menu to try and put these character lines in order. Um, and so I'm mostly going by who showed up when, right? Um, more or less. Um, I did take the list from Wikipedia as well and moved it around as I saw fit. Um, 
so next we're going to jump to Juliet, Peter, and Mark. Um, and we meet them, uh, basically, you know, Peter, played by my that actor, uh, this is a different name, and I am not 100% sure how to, uh, pronounce it, but I'm going to do my best, because I enjoy it, um, so I think it is, uh, Shuetel is you for? That's that is pretty much how I've heard it pronounced. I I think I think it's Chuetel or Shuetel Ejiofor, but you are okay. damn close. Um, okay. good good call. I I I love I love you know the I always want to try to get people's names right, and I like going for it. You know, yeah. I think that was great. He's yeah. a great actor. Yes, he is. Oh my word like this was the first movie i saw him in and he doesn't have a very large role he has very few lines and the first time we see him in the movie is probably the most lines he has in the movie um i mean he's got a couple of you know one or two lines later but you know he's talking to his best friend uh mark played by andrew lincoln um, and saying how, how no surprises today, you know, we're, we're just gonna go in and do this and, you know, we're no surprises like at my bachelor party and, you know, the, the stripper who turned out to be a man, you know, that, that wasn't a good idea. Like I said, you know, no surprises, but, um, how did you say his name? Shuatel, edgy for. Okay. It's either Shuatel or Chuatel, but I, I, okay. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Yeah, I wasn't sure where like the um, accent. Hard, on yeah, it accent. Go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he has an amazing filmography under his belt. Um, as I said, this was the first movie I saw him in. Um. And, you know, he, he just really stood out and in Love Actually. Um, and I didn't see him for a while. Um, I He was in Amistad, which I have not seen. He was in Dirty Pretty Things, which I have not seen. He, you know, was in She Hate Me, which I have not seen. Uh, Four Brothers, which I have not seen. Serenity, which I have not seen. <laughs> Like, all of these amazing movies that I know are amazing, and they are on my list, and I just have not gotten to them, I promise. Um, but the next movie that I saw him in was Kinky Boots. Woohoo! That movie is amazing, and we mentioned it before with uh, Nick Frost and his role in it, and... Oh, God, that movie is so amazing and so wonderful and so heartbreaking. And, oh, my God, that movie is just, oh, he, he just, he made it. He made Lola, and it was so perfect. Um, but, you know, to continue on, he's been in Children of Men and American Gangster in 2012 and Salt and... 12 Years a Slave, and Z for Zachariah, and The Martian, and so many 
freaking great movies. My word, this man is amazing. Um, he was in Doctor Strange. He was the voice of Scar in the live-action Lion King. You know, he just... I, I can't say enough about him. He just... He, he picks amazing movies to be in, and he brings it. Oh, yeah. He fucking does the damn thing every time. Like, I just... He's amazing. You know, and anything he is in will probably be just as amazing. Like, I guess he even had a part in, you know, the Maleficent um, sequel, Mr. Evil. I have not seen it yet. I got it for the holidays this past year, but I haven't watched it yet. Again, yet, I will get there, I promise. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's when we first see him, is him and his friend are speaking and they pan out and it turns out they're in a church and Peter is getting married to Juliet played by Kira Knightley and they do their vows and all of a sudden they hear this chorus and these curtains open up from like the second level and there's a full choir and this singer comes out and, um, you know, I've always wondered who this guy was. I didn't recognize him, you know, being, being in the United States, um, uh, we are not terribly worldly over here. Um, and I'm like, you know, that's not Neo and that's not, you know, that's not a number of other black, amazing singers out there. Um, so I did a little research and I found out his name was Lyndon David Hall. And he was a soul singer over in the UK. And um, I suggest going and checking out his albums. He's got a few out there. And he is such a fantastic singer with an amazing voice. Or was. Um, he did pass away in oh. 2006. Um, with complications, uh, he had, um, a blood disorder. I want to say it was Hodgkin's, um, oh. and it, it was actually a, um, problem with a stem cell treatment that they were using to try and combat, uh, the, the blood disorder. Um, and so he actually passed away at the age of 31. Um, but again, I implore you, go check out his albums, uh, Lyndon David Hall. Um, he just, he's amazing in this movie, no matter how small the part. And he, uh, you know, he's a really fantastic singer. Um, and actually while he's singing, once the song starts kicking up, um, different, uh, people playing different musical instruments pop up from, you know, the pews of this church. So, like, they've got flute players and they've got trombone players. And actually, the director, Richard Curtis, had a cameo as one of the trombone players. That's great. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's fun. And I think a lot of the actors had fun making this movie. Um, and actually, my favorite part of this scene is the guitar, pl guitar player in the pulpit. Like I think I think yeah. 
funny and the perfect place for him. And it just, it was fantastic. Um, and the idea for Mark's surprise, because um, that was all Mark's doing. It was a complete surprise to Peter and Juliet. Um, so the the idea of him setting this up and executing it at their wedding came from Jim Henson's funeral, yeah. which um, writer and director Richard Curtis attended, uh, where all of the puppeteers brought their Muppets and sang a song. Um, so it's just, it's a sweet idea and it's definitely, you know, one of the standout things in this movie. And there are so many standout things in this movie. Like, you can touch on any one of them and it's amazing. Um, so continuing down the Peter, Juliet, and Mark plot line, um, Juliet is often left out between Peter and Mark. And um, he doesn't talk to her. He doesn't... He has never tried to be her friend. Um, so, you know, she just kind of left it. They're best friends, whatever. It's their thing. And um, her their wedding video was crap. And he was recording at their wedding. And so she's like, hey, can I see your video? And after asking a few times and him never getting back to her, she ambushes him at his house and says, hey, can we check out that footage? And he's like, oh, I don't know where it is. You know, it could be anywhere. I probably taped over it. Any number of things. And she actually, you know, walking through his house, finds it very quickly and realizes that they're all shots of her. And, um, you know, uh, Mark leaves very quickly afterwards and he's you know trying to trying to say you know oh it's a self-preservation type of thing and she comes to the understanding that he loves her um silently from the sidelines for the entire time basically um and Andrew Lincoln has actually stated in interviews that looking back on his character uh, Mark, um, he feels the uh, behavior was creepy and inappropriate, and he wished they would have rewritten his scenes to make him appear more reasonable and normal about his feelings for Juliet. But quite honestly, if your best friend is in a relationship with your quote-unquote perfect woman, I mean, what can you do? Right. I. I it, it's funny because watching the movie and experiencing this character for the first time and not realizing until it got to the cue card moment that, oh, okay, I, know, I, I get this now, you know, where this came from. Um, at first, you know, I was like, all right, they're going to go somewhere creepy with this, you know, and they don't. No. Like, and, and I, I feel like he has it completely wrong. Like, this guy, he's 100% handling it in the only real way you can yeah. If you're a reasonable human being, you can't change how you feel and who you love, but you can sacrifice that because you know that this person is also perfect for your best friend. Yeah. And that's what he does. Well, and, and he wants to salvage his friendship. I mean, it's right. his best friend. Right. And he, so he, you know, he makes it known how he feels 
and she, you, you know, it's it's the imperfection in the gray area of reality. Yeah. You know, because even she, she comes back and gives him a kiss, you know, and, and you'll get there. But sorry to check off that for later. But, you know, <laughs> it it's that reciprocation of, you know what, like we we can we can still be perfect where we are in our life and feel this together is something that the world and prior love stories and society does not allow to exist that yeah. idea of oh no it's all black and white and no shit shit's not going to be that way but you can be an adult about it yeah and yep. and i thought that was really cool yeah i mean had it gone any other way, it would have been terrible. Yeah. You know, it would have crushed, you know, either him or his friend. It would have dissolved their friendship. It would have done a whole number of things. And that's that's not who the character was. Nope. I mean, as as you see this character, you know, throughout the movie, like at one point where he's at the wedding reception taking video um, Sarah comes up and she's like, so I noticed you watching him the entire time. Like, have you told him you're into him? Like, yeah, just this whole thing. Like, other people can see that he's staring and possibly being creepy. Um, but he's not making it known. You know, he just it's not his thing um and uh like he's supposed to be at the holiday party with mia the secretary who we will check off on that whole situation in yeah. a few minutes um but like they're across the room from each other the entire time and he just he's you know um he's just he's not that kind of person like even when he says oh you know i've got to meet someone for lunch i've got to go and like he gets outside to the street and he goes to walk away and then he turns around and he goes to walk away and then he turns around and he does this like two or three times and it just he's in such a spin that she found this um and you know the realization is there and she knows and oh my god what's gonna happen with all this and you know he's he goes off and walks and i don't i don't really think he has an appointment to go to he just needed an excuse to get out of there self-preservation uh, yeah and he's you know walking into a square at one point and he just lets out this yell of anguish and scares like a shopper near him um and just you know he's just in a tizzy about everything that literally just happened like basically his world more or less or this part of his world just cracked you know and um so kind of the the last piece of the Juliet Peter Mark plot is later on um Mark shows up at Juliet and Peter's door and uh Juliet answers and um he's got a boombox with him and tells her to uh tell her husband that it's carolers and yes this is their home they're a husband and wife 
Um, and this this is where the movie gets a lot of flack. People thought, you know, he shouldn't have done this. This was overstepping. Um, and this was actually one of the parts of the movie where me and my partner paused it and we talked about this situation and why it was important for this character and the movie. Um, but basically he goes through with these cue cards that Andrew Lincoln more or less wrote himself. Um, and just saying, you know, hopefully next year I'll be with some insanely beautiful model type woman. Um, but you know, to me, you're perfect. And, you know, it's the holidays, and if I can't say it now, when can I? But, you know, I love you, more or less. Um, and, you know, he picks up his stuff and goes to leave. And, I mean, it's basically his way of getting closure. Yep. Um, and, and closing the door on that. Like, he, he knew he was never going to act on it. But with her finding the video and learning all this, she must have a million questions, you know, and he's, you know, freaking out that she now knows and he doesn't know kind of what's going to happen around it. And so, you know, for him to show up and be like, you know, I, I understand that this is the situation. This is how I feel about you. And now we're all done. Like, that's that's closure. Like, that's what he needed to do to move forward and stop pining, basically. And it also lays it out on the table that it's not some creepy thing. Like, I don't yeah. I don't have a bunch of tapes of videos of you that I'm doing weird stuff with, right? This is literally yeah. just an infatuation. Like, and I and now you know, and now I can tell you. And now we're on an even playing field on it. And that's the last one we're going to speak about it. Yep. You know? Yep. And, you know, he starts to walk away. And she runs up and gives him a kiss. And I don't know about you all out there. But, I mean, there's been a couple times in my life where I was like, you know, I wonder what it would be like to kiss them. You know? And so I've, I've felt it. Um, I'm not saying that's something everybody has, but, you know, to just, you know, to solidify those feelings and kind of explain everything to her, you know, and that was kind of her, I feel like, thank you, more yeah. or less, um, in, in kind of putting things to rest and um, explaining a few things. Um, and, you know, after she runs back to her house, he's like, okay, this is done. Like, you know, it's, it's really, it says a lot, you know, it says what he needed to, and it completed his arc. And it, I just, I, I loved it. You know, a lot of people think he's creepy and weird or gross. And, you know, he even feels that the, you know, character is kind of creepy and weird and gross but it's also the character so that's that was that plot line yeah. um next is colin tony and the american girls 
<laughs> Oof, this storyline. Um, so Colin is awkward. I, my first, my first line on here is Colin is so horny and awkward. Like, yeah, he he does a bunch of different jobs. Um, so like he delivers muffins and donuts to uh this Mia, the secretary, who we will again check off and meet later but he's like here you go my future wife and she just gives him a look of disdain and walks away and you know he just he goes to he's a cater waiter at Juliet and Peter's wedding and he's wearing a red shirt under his white button down they love it (laughs) (laughs) and it's just he's so awkward and kind of naive um i just you know he he actually um finds a woman kind of standing by herself at the reception and starts talking to her and he's like oh you know you want to try one of these you know appetizers and she's like no and you know he accidentally insults the caterer's food to her face um and it was originally written as a scene for Hugh Grant's character in Four Weddings and a Funeral, but it was cut from the movie. And so it just it's something kind of funny to bring around with Hugh Grant being in this movie as well. Um, but just, you know, goes to show how awkward and ridiculous he is. You know, that he's he's just trying to, you know, get with somebody, more or less. You know, he's not necessarily trying to find love he's trying to find physical love um but he's not trying to find emotional love or anything like that and uh he goes back to talk to his friend tony um and says you know what i'm on the wrong continent man i need to go to america you know women there will think i'm cute with my british accent and you know that's where i'll get laid (laughs) <laughs> more or less and it's it's so head scratching and ridiculous and his friend tony is the voice of reason like you are stupid to be doing this and he chooses milwaukee milwaukee i love it it it's it's such a great like spit take of a comic moment yeah. for anyone in the audience that knows milwaukee <laughs> Yeah, it's, or it's, just knows U.S. geography at all. It's fucking Wisconsin, and no offense to Wisconsinites. Um, I'm here in Minnesota, as we've said before. So we we neighbor Wisconsin. I've been to Wisconsin many a time, and um, they definitely don't have Shannon Elizabeth lookalikes sitting around. I'll tell you that much. Um, but I guess the filmmaker stated that Colin picks Milwaukee instead of somewhere more common like New York or California, because to foreigners, uh, places like Milwaukee are seen as more exotic. And uh, to someone like Colin, who has a more offbeat way of looking at things, um, it would fit his persona to choose somewhere like Milwaukee. That makes um, sense. It does. You know, I, I I could see him try to go to L.A., but he would get snubbed so hard. Um, but, you know, to pop up in 
Milwaukee, they would love him with his cute accent. You know, I, I can totally see it. Um, and so, you know, he, he pops in throughout the movie at his friend Tony's house. Like, you know, he's got his backpack and he's like, well, I rented out my apartment. I've got my backpack. I head off to America tomorrow. And, um, you know, Tony drops him off at the airport and he gets to Wisconsin and gets in a taxi and he's like, take me to a bar. And the driver's like, what bar? And he's like, any bar. And literally walks in and orders a Budweiser. Um, the king of beers. Well, Miller says <laughs> Miller is uh, the king of beers in Wisconsin. Um, and yep. yeah, and he runs into like literally three of some of the hottest actors that you know we've seen in movies like Alicia Cuthbert and. You know, um, later on we see Shannon Elizabeth and Denise Richards. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Come on now. Like, this this was my... Actually, when he was sitting at the table and um, the girls are like, what is this? And making him say stuff with his British accent. My partner was like, what the hell? What is this? And I'm like, well, you're not a big drinker, hon. But... You know, drunk girls can be like that sometimes, you know, and just do silly stuff like that. Um, But they're like, oh, where are you staying? You can totally come home with us, but we only have one bed and it gets very hot. So we all sleep naked and it's like the quintessential like man dream, basically, of these hot girls. And I'm sorry, but no. (laughs) Nope. You, you you should not invite some random man from out of the country that you literally just met an hour ago to your apartment. You shouldn't. You don't know what he's going to do, you know. And um, actually, Chris Marshall, the guy who played Colin, uh, returned his paycheck for the scene where the three American girls undress him. Um, he said he had such a great time having three girls undress him for 21 takes that he was willing to do it for free. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So not so, much different than the character. Yeah, I guess. And then, you know, um, in the epilogue at the end, you know, there's a number of characters coming back on flights and meeting up with friends, family, and whatnot. And he comes in and, you know... He's got Shannon Elizabeth in tow, who's the quote-unquote sexy one, Harriet. And then, you know, he brought a friend, Denise Richards, to meet Tony and prove, you know, Tony wrong that there are these ridiculously hot women in Wisconsin. Which, I'm not saying there are not hot women in Wisconsin. Like, I'm, I'm sure there are some very beautiful women in Wisconsin. I'm just saying... It's not that likely. <laughs> right. The, that's it, that's why I, this is a movie. I had almost thought with the tone the rest of the movie took that this would be the time where they'd have, you know, Colin wake up in the bar, 
you know, passed out and have it had been a dream or something, <laughs> you know, just to like add in though. Cause this is, I mean, it, it, it ends up being at least, you know, like sweet, I guess in a creepy, you know, kind of way because he doesn't do anything weird. It just, it works out for him. You know, he found, <laughs> he found some American girls that are really into him and they want to come to England with him. Great. You know, yep. um, there, there doesn't seem to be anything gross about it other than he just happened to find exactly what he was looking for, <laughs> but what he's looking for doesn't technically usually exist, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in outside of young guys' minds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Colin is, you know, uh, about college aged, you know, young guy looking to score type of situation. So, you know, it worked out for that character as it was written. But again, this is a movie. Um, so I'm actually going to jump uh, and switch plots here. Um, Tony, Colin's friend, was a some sort of uh, person who worked behind the scenes in adult movies. Um, <laughs> which is where we meet John and Judy. And they are porn stand-ins it's how they get Um, the lighting and everything correct and i love the friggin' comedy in these scenes yeah yeah like this this is another set of comic relief um these characters aren't you know that well tied to anybody except tony you know they're they're kind of friends they know each other from work um, but like I have, you know, porn stand-ins. Is that really a thing? I have and, no idea. Um, yeah, I I was confused because I I didn't think there was that much that went into porn. But you know, I've never been behind the scenes on an adult movie set, so I really don't know. Um, but I did find this little tidbit um, that says Jack and Judy's job was a source of confusion for many viewers. Um, the characters were lighting doubles for a film shoot, so their job is to place themselves into positions that the film's stars will later be in so that the lighting and camera crews can arrange the lights and focus the cameras for specific scenes without bothering the actual stars for the hours it can take to prepare to shoot a scene. Uh, lightning doubles, unlike body double lighting, <laughs> not lightning, lighting doubles, unlike body doubles or stunt doubles, do not appear in the actual film, but they do need to have the same coloring and basic size as the actor for whom they are doubling. Hence Jack's comments about doubling for Brad Pitt, even though their faces do not look much alike, except for being in the same, you know, eyes, nose, mouth arrangement. Um, And Martin Freeman and Brad Pitt have similar hair and skin tones. So I guess that's what um, lighting doubles are, which I had no idea. So I definitely learned something new. Um, But we, we basically see them and how they grow throughout the movie um they basically start meeting on this you know film set where they're you know more just pretending to have sex and you know 
he has to fondle her chest as they're going to do in the movie. And, you know, it progresses on to, you know, they're, they keep having to meet up for this movie and stand in and do these lighting doubles. And then eventually he asks her out to dinner. And then by the end of the movie, they're engaged. So it's just this sweet little love story um, throughout the movie that just, you know, they met at work and they get together and, uh, you know, it's cute. And they're a cute couple. And actually, it's funny. I was like, um, I was I was yelling at another character. I was saying, don't stick your pen in the company's ink. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, that's actually where my, me and my partner met. Um, was when we were working together. So I guess I'm being a little hypocritical there. Um, (laughs) So the next uh, plot we're going to talk about is Jamie and Aurelia, which this, oh, this this couple was great. Um, But Jamie's story arc is, is different. Um, he starts out having a girlfriend and going off to Peter and Juliet's wedding and coming back to find his brother at this apartment he's sharing with his girlfriend. And it turns out she's cheating on him with his brother. And uh, he basically flies off to a little villa in France to work on a book that he's writing um, and he just says, alone again, naturally. And gets introduced to, uh, well, the regular housekeeper comes around and says, hey, this is your new housekeeper. She doesn't speak English. She doesn't speak French. Uh, she speaks Portuguese, which, <laughs> um, a, a fun kind of thing. Uh, um, Jamie is trying to, like, stand there, and he's speaking bits of different languages and the housekeeper there is like what is that Turkish like knock it off like <laughs> she speaks Portuguese and that's it <laughs> like he's he's trying to say nice to meet you and he says it in like three different languages and it's just not coming through and that kind of sets the standard for his working relationship with Aurelia um and so we round back to see them again, and Aurelia is taking care of him, bringing him food, coffee, you know, picking up dishes, whatnot. And at one point, he's working outside, and she picks up a cup that he had been drinking out of, and his entire manuscript goes flying with the wind and into this lake. And she runs off and takes, just strips down to everything. But her underwear, basically, um, or strips down to everything, strips everything off but her underwear. And he gets this peek of this little tattoo she has on her lower back. And that's it. Um, And jumps in. And they have this miscommunication. They've been miscommunicating this entire time. Like, you know, they're basically saying the same thing, just in different languages. And, you know... He's like, you know, oh, don't, don't bother. It's not worth it. And she's like, you know, I hope this isn't crap my grandma can write. You know, I hope, 
you know, <laughs> this is worth it. And he's like, oh, God, if I don't get down there and help, she's going to think I'm a jerk. And so he runs down and he literally falls sideways into the lake. Like, it's it's so ridiculous. He just, like, falls over. <laughs> and, um, like, he's like, really, it's not worth it. I can rewrite it. No big deal. And, of course, she doesn't understand. So she's like, you know... Just try not to wake the eels while, you know, we're in here. And he's like, oh, I sure hope there aren't any eels in here. Oh, God, what was that? And they're just, they're they're both going around trying to, you know, collect these papers. Um, and actually, the lake in which they are swimming was actually only about 18 inches deep. And they had to kneel down and pretend to be in deeper water. Um, so it just, it's, it's kind of funny knowing it was that shallow, um, and that they had to splash around in it to, you know, find these pages more or less. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's really cute that, uh, he gives her a ride home each day and like (laughs) how he's trying to talk to her and make conversation and she's not understanding and it's just not working. And it's so heartbreakingly cute like they're just they're he's trying he's trying what were you gonna say i was i love when she says to him before uh before they're actually communicating with each other so you won't the audience gets to hear it but he doesn't the best part of my day is riding home with you and it's just like that's beautiful you know well she said the best part of my day is driving you home and yes. she said that it's the saddest part of my day. Right. Leaving. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Oh and, God, it's just such a, it's so good. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's that whole missing each other. And like, even after they were in the lake and they're trying to communicate, to communicate, she's like, Oh, you could name a character after me. And he's like, Oh, maybe I could name a character after you. And she's like, or you could give me 50% of the profits. And he's like, Oh, I could give you 5% of the profits. And, <laughs> and um, she gets the idea. She wants to know what the book is about. And so she kind of starts miming um, different emotions to try and figure out, what the book is about and they kind of start connecting um and understanding each other um and so uncle jamie uh jamie is gonna go off on holiday and he packs up his trunk and he takes her home you know one last time before he goes to visit his family and she kisses him and walks off and, you know, she's got a tear in her eye that she's not going to see him for who knows how long, quite honestly. I don't, she, she picks up a job at another place uh, by her house. So I don't, I don't know if that was like the last day of her job there. Um, they didn't really specify on it. Um, but I, I kind of wonder with the tear that, you know, she, she, thinks she's never going to see him again right um and so uh uncle jamie shows up at his family's holiday celebration with arms of gifts and wine and bushels of 
garlic um <laughs> and basically all this stuff from france and uh everybody's like uncle jamie uncle jamie's here yay and he walks in the door and he's standing there and he sees all these people excited to see him and he's like nope this isn't where i want to be and uh and <laughs> my partner was like well at least leave the presents and, right <laughs> and you know in in the uh in the shot of him walking away he has dropped all of his packages not dropped but set down all of his packages and walks out <laughs> basically um you know leaving all the stuff he brought for them there and he's like nope i have a mission and uh we see cuts of him you know uh learning portuguese and you know um trying to figure out kind of where she lives basically and whatnot um excuse me chris i'm gonna take a quick drink of water here of course i just wanted to say so so you could put a thing about it in yes the newts so right after uncle jamie you passed it no i'm just gonna write i do my my notes in the beginning of the section cut water drinking after uncle okay alrighty and we're back so when we cut back to Jamie again he shows up um, to basically Aurelia's family's house um and he says to her father that he wants to marry his daughter. And he calls in and um, out comes a heavier set girl. And they, Aurelia has made allusions to this in the movie. Um, but, you know, she's, she's heavier set and... You know, the dad is like, hey, this guy wants to marry you. And she's like, but I don't know him. He's like, so what? Go with him. I'll, I'll pay him to take you. Just, Ugh. you know, go. And, um, like, he, he calls her several fat names. Like, Miss Dunkin' Donuts and whatnot. And it's... It's sad how weight is such an issue in other countries and yep. uh, even worse than here in America. And I understand obesity is a problem in America, um, but in other countries, they're going to straight up say it and point it out. Um, they're just they're open and forward like that, I guess. Um, it just. Uh, it's just another thing that people thought was funny and it isn't, you know, it's just fat phobia. Um, either way, uh, he says, no, no, your other daughter, Aurelia. And the father's like, well, she's at work, but I'll take you to her. And so as they're walking to Aurelia's work, they're gathering a crowd basically in this town where I guess everybody knows their family and knows Aurelia and all these rumors are starting to um, basically dust up 
um, like, oh, father's going to sell Aurelia as a slave, and <laughs> this man's going to kill Aurelia. Cool. And it just... It's such it, a fun sequence. It is. It really is. And they're walking through these streets, and because it's not that far away. It's like, what, a couple blocks or something. And just, they just get this whole crowd of people and all these ridiculous rumors as they're walking like these two blocks and it's just it's so funny and so they show up in the tiniest cafe oh my word this cafe is so squished it's like long and skinny cafe and it's got like a second level and it's it's pretty cool but it's also very squished and um they all show up in the front of this cafe where Aurelia has started working as a server and um you know they the father's like where's Aurelia this man wants to marry her and uh they say you know she's working upstairs and um she comes out and serves some people their food and sees Jamie there and her family and this crowd <laughs> And um, Jamie calls up to her in bad Portuguese. Um, <laughs> I, I thought the translations were really cute. They were um, awesome. You know, I don't think you to be as crazy as me. And, you know, it's, I think it's transparent instead of clear. Like, it just, it's fun. Um, and so he asks for her hand in marriage. And she says yes in English, which means she's been, uh, he, he asks, oh, you learned English. And she said, you know, just in cases, you know. <laughs> it's so cute. They are. They are so cute. And, um, you know, she says yes and they kiss. And then she's, then Jamie is kissed by her sister. And then Jamie is kissed by their father. Um <laughs> It's just a celebration. Um, so that that was pretty fun. I do have on here epic mustache. Yep. Um, there's a gentleman at the cafe with a fantastic epic mustache. It is amazing. And, you know, if you watch it after listening to this, um, you will definitely see it. It's amazing. Perfect. Perfect length. Perfect curl. Like... You do not see many mustaches this fine. So that was the story of um, uh, Jamie and Aurelia. Uh, they do show up in the epilogue where they're coming back uh, from a vacation, I'm assuming. And they run into uh, Tony and Colin, who I guess <laughs> Jamie knows. And um, Aurelia was like, wow, your friends are very good looking. Maybe I picked the wrong man. And Jamie's like, she doesn't speak English very well. She doesn't know what she's saying. So <laughs> <laughs> it just, you know, they're they're a fun couple. You know, it's it's great. Um, and it just uh, it's just so fun just with their language barrier and how they grow together and make it work it just it's it's fun i can't i can't say much else you know and 
again, you know, it still had notes of being sweet and it shows Jamie going through, you know, this heartache of losing a girlfriend and being alone and, you know, finding another partner. It just, you know, again, this movie has so many facets. It's wonderful. Um, So next we're going to talk about Daniel, Sam, Joanna, and Carol. Um, So Daniel is played by Liam Neeson, which I thought it was very refreshing to see him in this role. Um, We uh, usually see him in an action role, you know, if I am... You know, you have taken my daughter. I have a very specific set of skills and I will come for her. You know, stuff like that. Um, So he's... We we open up and get introduced to the Daniel character. Um, In mourning, he just lost his wife. And um, he cries and he is sad and it is okay to cry men um it's okay to express your emotions and uh at this point we actually meet karen emma thompson's character as well um i think she's a friend of the family's or was a friend of his wife's um but she's providing you know a listening ear for daniel and Daniel is basically left with Sam, his stepson. So, like, not even his real dad. Like, he came into this situation. Like, I don't know where Sam's dad is. They don't. T- they don't talk about it. But, like, stepdad and stepson. This this is a hard oh, yeah. situation. You know, and Joanna and Carol will come on later. But basically for the first half of this plot, or actually the first like three quarters of this plot, is basically Daniel and Sam. Um and the first the first note I have on here is music at funeral. And um he one of his wife's wishes when she passed was to have this song playing during a slideshow while she is being carried out of the service that they're having for her and it's bye bye baby by the bay city rollers and it's refreshing to hear i cannot tell you how many times i have heard amazing grace at a funeral it just there are so many other songs out there like i i wish more people wouldn't just fall back on amazing grace Agreed. not that there's anything wrong with amazing grace but um when when i planned my mother's memorial there was no amazing grace i mm-hmm. chose songs that were very close to her and songs that, you know, um, a song by uh, an artist that she loved, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. And, you know, I, I tried to make it more personalized. You know, I just, I wish more services were like that. It just, 
it feels stale to hear the same songs every time. Agreed. Um, and the next point I have on here is great stepdad. Yeah. Like, he's not just all consumed in himself that he lost his partner and, you know, he's, you know, what is he going to do? But he realizes that this kid needs care, too. And he talks to him because he notices the kid is pretty down. And he's like, oh, are you just sad about your mom? And he's like, well, no, I'm in love, you know. And he's like, oh, you're in love. That's great. And he's like, no, this <laughs> this sucks. This is, you know, this is, oh, what is the word that he used? Um, I he, wish I could remember it. It was so good, though. Agony. The agony of being in love, you know, and uh, so he's got a crush on this girl at school and they're they're trying to basically figure out ways to talk to her, get in with her, any number of things. And, you know, he's like, she's the most popular girl girl in school. She's absolutely beautiful. She hates boys. Um, And they find out that Joanna the girl's name, which was the same name as his mother who passed, which is very oh. sweet. Um, she's going to be singing in the school holiday play. Um, and so he decides that he wants to play the drums for it. And he does not know how to play the drums. So they get him set up with drums and he learns and actually uh Thomas Brody's sangster did not know how to play the drums when he was cast but his father Mark Sangster plays the drums and taught him how that's awesome yeah so that was really cool and um you know there's there's plenty of cuts just quick cuts into the other plots of the movie where um you know uh daniel is like oh you know time for dinner and sam is like i'm not hungry and he's like you gotta eat he said he's like read the sign and there's a whiteboard on his door that said i said i'm not hungry i love it yeah their, their relationship is perfect i love one of the times where the kid just tells him everything that's going on and he's yeah. trying to be supportive. And then he goes, well, not, then you're just fucked, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, um, there's a couple of times where Daniel mentions, you know, at the funeral, like one of his wife's wishes was for him to bring Claudia Schiffer. And, you know, um, He's like, I'll be there for you unless I meet Claudia Schiffer. Then, you know, we're going to want to shag in every room of, the, room of the house and you'll be out on the street. Yeah, including your room. So <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's the only way he knows how to do, you know, he, he, this isn't, I mean, he might have been around the kid for a while, but he... You know, he came into this situation. He did not father this child biologically. It's so Um, genuine, his relationship with this kid. Yeah. Yeah. And all while he's, you know, you know, still mourning the loss of his own wife. And um, 
there are times where he just breaks down and that's that's grief you know and it hurts and it sucks but you know you deal with it how you can um and so we get to the school play um which is kind of like the big culmination at the end of like all the characters yeah um i i put it under this plot because they have the biggest part in it um and so they get to the school and Daniel sends Sam off and bumps into Carol, who's basically Claudia Schiffer. Um, and <laughs> I love that. She shows up twice and literally has like one line each. And she's in the movie for a total of like one minute. But for her cameo, Claudia Schiffer received a reported $300,000 for one minute. That's amazing. Yeah, um, but you know it's worth did, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she did great, and she was a uh, mom at you know the school, and you know um, in the epilogue we see them you know at the airport waiting for Joanna to come back. Um, but so uh, Sam winds up becoming the drummer for Joanna's. Uh, song that she's going to do for the school play, which we need to talk about this school play for a minute. So I guess all of the schools in the area got together to put on like one big school play. And so at the nativity, there, there is a whole slew of animals with um, Mary and Joseph at the manger. Um, there's lobsters and a whale and oh my word, um, all these all the different animals. Like they had to find things for these kids to do. So <laughs> octopus and just a whole number of animals at the birth of Jesus. And uh one kid who is dressed as a king is also Spider-Man. Um, yep, it's wonderful. He, he has Spider-Man face paint, and it's the cutest thing ever, and it's so great. Like, I don't know if he just showed up like that, and they just went with it, or what, but it's such just a fun little extra thing. Um, <laughs> And so, then we, uh, we see Joanna's song, um, and she and her mother put it together, and she sings, All I Want for Christmas is You, which is Mariah Carey's basically bread and butter now. Um, she, yep. makes, she makes a ton of money and just lives off of what she gets over the holidays. Um, not to mention, you know, her royalties and her singing career before and, you know, whenever she decides to come out of hiding to do a show or two. Right. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, she she sings All I Want for Christmas is You. You know, the credits at the end of the movie incorrectly list Tessa Niles as the performer in the Christmas concert scene, but Olivia Olsen, who plays Joanna, actually does all of her own singing 
for All I Want for Christmas is You. And she had such an amazing voice that the director had it edited so she sounded more like a child singing. That's amazing. Yeah, like that that number is amazing. Holy buckets. Um, and, you know, at the big, all I want for Christmas is you with the high note. She points at Sam and, you know, then he turns thinks around. he's in. Yep. Then turns around and points at the audience. And at the end, um, they hurry off to the airport to go to America for the holiday season. And he thinks he'll never see her again. And so they basically chase Olivia and her mom to the airport. And there's this amazing action scene of Sam running through the airport to get to Joanna. And just before she gets on the plane, um, we don't know exactly what was said. Uh, because it's, you know, it's a far, far shot um, from behind glass while they're speaking. So we don't know what exactly he said to her. But, um, you know, he comes back happy as a clam, led by security. And, and you know, um, doesn't she give him a cheek kiss before they go? She, he comes walking out and then she comes running out. Yeah, and gives him a kiss on the cheek and then yeah. goes back to her It's so plane. cute. Yeah, and he's just so, he's just beaming smile and just huge and it's adorable. And then in the epilogue, um, uh, Daniel is there with Carol, Claudia Schiffer, and <laughs> Sam and Carol's son uh, waiting for Joanna to come back. And uh, it's just, it's adorable. Um, it all wraps up, and they each, you know, kind of found their dream girl, and it's it's just wonderful. It's perfect. It, it's I would watch Daniel and Sam's misadventures, and you for the whole movie. They they yeah. just they it 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 was so great to see, like you said, a dad and a son, a that, that aren't even biological, yeah, and yet they're both trying so hard to be there for each other and it's it's just so genuine and um you you know you said at the beginning of this how it's so refreshing to see Liam Neeson in a role like this and it it's kind of um an interesting thing uh it's kind of a sad poetic justice almost that one of the big reasons why Liam Neeson um pushed himself into doing all the revenge movies is because his real life wife died unexpectedly. Oh. And so it's it's you know he he kind of like buried himself in work and did um I think it was a ski accident or an embolism yeah. I forget. And it's just so so it's like it's an interesting thing because <clears throat> I am watching this now only really knowing Liam Neeson from the more action stuff he's doing so to me it too it's like refreshing but it's like no he was kind of in this world first. And yeah. then fell into that. And I just, I thought that was an interesting parallel. Do you know when his wife passed? Oh, goodness. It was the early 2010s. Oh, okay. All right. So... It was right after the first Taken came out. Because then he did like two sequels to that and like four or five other get off my, you know, whatever um, apparatus he's traveling on <laughs> movies or whatever. Yeah. 
Now, we've covered about half of the characters in this film, I'd say. And we just had such a heartfelt time with the All I Want for Christmas is You Christmas concert, running through the airport, telling Joanna he loves her. Now we're going to talk about Harry, Karen, and Mia. Uh, this this group, just this group. Um, of course, Harry is played by the amazing Alan Rickman. Karen is the effervescent Emma Thompson. And Mia... I just happen to have the IMDb of it. Heike McCatch. Okay. Um, I can't say I've heard of her, but I know I've seen her in other things. Um, I have her IMDb up as well. Um, oh, she was in Resident Evil and The Book Thief. And um, just a, a good amount of stuff, actually. Um, it looks like a lot of foreign films. Oh, she was in The Adventures of Huck Finn in 2012. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Tom Sawyer. Um, yeah, it looks like a lot of German. Yeah, that's that's my guess. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else I would have seen her in. As I said, she was in Resident Evil. Um... And nothing yeah, lots, else jumps out. Lots of German here. My goodness. Um, maybe she's fluent. Um, either way, thank you so much for that assist. Um, You're welcome. So the very first note I have here is slimy secretary. Like, just, ugh. Just, <laughs> Mia is just so, just, ugh. Like, she knows her boss is married. She doesn't care. She's going after him. She's making it absolutely blatant that she wants him. She tells him, you know, it's all for you. Everything's for you. There's one point where, you know, he walks up to her desk and she, like, has her legs open. And then she opens her legs wider. And they go to the holiday party and just, she's dressed, um... Very slinkily. Um, yes, good way to describe it. <laughs> and was it me or was she wearing like devil's horns? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, she very much was. Yeah. I'm like, okay, girl, like we get you're slimy. You don't have to put yourself on blast like that. Um, But we got to talk about this holiday party because... Actually, this whole movie has a really great soundtrack. Yeah, it does. Um, And you really take... Well, I mean, throughout the entire thing, it's got a really great soundtrack. But you really take notice of it uh, during the holiday party. I mean, it's got, you know, um, All You Need Is Love. It's um, It's got Maroon 5. It's got Mariah Carey. It's got... You know, Bye Bye Baby by the Bay City Rollers. It's got, you know, um, Joni Mitchell. It's got Dido. It's got Kelly Clarkson. It's got Justin Timberlake. Like, it has people from all over. Like, it has Pharrell. Like, 
this this soundtrack is banging. Like it's even got Rob Thomas and Santana. Come yeah. on now. Um, I just there's. I'm just looking at the entire list of songs in the movie, not even on the actual soundtrack. But it just it's it's amazing. And like it even has the little like catch a falling star song that the kids did and the Beach Boys and you know Diane Warren and it just it's this soundtrack is all over the board and absolutely amazing. Um, it's just, it's really fantastic. And, you know, you really get a showcase of the popular songs during the holiday party. Um, and I got to mention, you know, after the holiday party, when, when Harry and Karen get home and Karen is, you know, changing out of her dress, she, she knows Mia's gunning for him. She, she even says, you know, you be careful. Like, she's really pretty. Steer clear of that one. So, like, this is no secret. Like, Mia makes it known to everyone. Like, she... She has no shame in this. And... uh, It's just... It's really just gross. And just... Just stop, girl. Like... I don't know. Go find another older gentleman to shag if you're in May-December relationships, but not your boss. Like, don't... I would say don't stick your pen in company ink, but um, the partner that I married, um, we worked together, and that's how we met. So I would be a bit of a hypocrite at that point, but um, especially the boss-employee relationship. Do not stick your pen in company ink. It is not a good idea. Um, Especially when one of them is married. It just seems so self-destructive. You know? It just... Ugh. So much... Ugh. And, um... So, you know, there's one point where, you know, Harry asks her... Well, she asks him if... She's getting him something for Christmas. And he said, well, what are you getting me? And she said, it's all for you. And I think that's where she opened her legs more. And it's like, girl, calm down. There are toys for that. Like, go <laughs> go get yourself some help. Go, get, go love yourself. Just, you know, calm down that heat. Um, so anyway, uh, Harry winds up christmas shopping or holiday shopping with karen and karen goes off to pick up a few things and harry finds himself at the jewelry counter where we meet rufus yes played by the um incomparable rowan atkinson who uh, is my my that actor for this um it it was quite alarming almost for me to see him show up because (laughs) This sequence of the film is so harsh. Yeah. Like, and they all play it really well, right? Like, like Emma Thompson is just heartbreaking. And Rickman, instead of Rickman being like a gross, like, like man's man about it, he does seem kind of like, um, just like, like a, like a fool, 
You know what I mean? Yep. Like, like he's just, yep. but before he can do anything about it, he's in over his head and it's just like, oh, I fucked up. I, you know I what I mean? I more bumbling idiot. Yeah. But... And, and that's no excuse. Cause no. you know, you, you make a commitment, you stick to it. That that's my yeah. outlook with it, you know? Yep. But, uh, this sequence is so serious almost that to see Atkinson show up doing his, you know, comic relief shtick, his levity shtick. Um, I was afraid it wouldn't work, but I love him so much in this bit. Um, and for those yeah. that don't know Rowan Atkinson, um, he he's got 79 acting credits. He's oh, most well known as the incredible Mr. Bean from yes. the British television shows and movies. <laughs> but he shows up in lots of things. Um, one of my favorite bits of his is Rat Race. Yes. Um, it's a race. I hope I win. Um, <laughs> he he played the character with narcolepsy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he's been in several Mr. Bean movies. He's been in Johnny English. He's done voices on Scooby-Doo. Um, oh, really? And then he's been um, kind of like all... Uh, I'm surprised he didn't show up in Edgar Wright films. He's been in so <laughs> many other movies with this entire cast. But mm-hmm. he, he shows Actually, up... Uh, real quick, um, yeah. talking about Edgar Wright films, Simon Pegg was also considered for this role of uh, Rufus, Interesting. the uh, the jewelry store clerk. So, um, so I I begin to wonder if Atkinson completely improved this because the flourish of how this thing is gift wrapped <laughs> is ridiculous. <laughs> um. I don't know if you remember beat for beat, but like, and now the rosemary and he's like grinding rosemary over it. And then, oh, and now we have to put it in the box. Wait, it's not done being wrapped yet. What are you going to do? Dip it in yogurt, cover it, cover it in chocolate sprinkles. So good. <laughs> and, and he sells it. And, uh, you know, um, instead of check offing it for later, I'm going to check off it to the past. Um, I really liked him showing back up. Um, you know, kind of in, there's almost like a wink, like he knows what's going on when yeah. he's involved in the sequence with Daniel and the son, cause yeah. his, um, bumbling to find his ticket with almost like that nod of, Hey, you know, I did this on purpose. Oh no, is that why, totally on purpose is, is why the little boy is able to break through. So I like yeah. that the movie, I love that this movie, even when it has one note characters, seems to in a different sequence give them a little bit of agency like no there's a reason we introduced you to this person not just to be the foil of you know because this scene with harry buying this necklace this is not good no you know like he's he is about this is the last straw like the movie doesn't go as far to show him cheating on his wife but this is it you know what i mean we don't know who the necklace is for yet right um but you know, he, he goes over to the jewelry counter to buy this beautiful gold heart necklace. And, um, like, the gift wrapping <laughs> for this small box necklace is so ridiculous and over the top. And, oh, it just needs a sprig of holly and a cinnamon stick and cellophane and this huge gold box and like it took so long that karen comes back and she's like oh caught you at the jewelry counter you know uh you don't have to do that we've been married long enough you know whatever 
just kind of, you know, playing it up like, you know, you don't have to get me jewelry anymore. You don't have to try to impress me. Um, and actually, um, going back to the airport scene, um, I have seen this movie so much. So the reason I think it's on purpose is if you actually watch Rufus during it, um, like especially when his back is turned to um, Daniel and Sam, like he's he's making bigger gestures with his arms and his shoulders to right. try and give them more coverage. And he's, you know, um, he's loading up the ticket taker or the ticket checker with like his gloves and his I don't think he took his hat off, but like two or three other things. And so he is occupying this ticket taker as much as possible. And then, you know, once the kid gets by, he's like, oh, must have forgotten it somewhere. And like gives Daniel a knowing look as he walks off. I loved it. Yeah, it, it was it was really great. And actually, um, at the end, it was going to be an angel um, instead of Rufus. But I I don't. I don't know why they changed it, but I'm glad they did. Yeah, the movie, I do like, you know, even though I'm, I'm, you know, not for religious and other things being put in where they're unnecessary because you don't need to beat people to death with that. But right. I do like Christmassy movies where they put that little wink of like holiday something, but this didn't need it. You yeah. know, it, it would have felt like, where was this in the rest of the movie? You know? Yeah. Yep, and I mean, there's, I feel there's enough Christmas in the movie. Exactly. For for a non-holiday movie, there's enough Christmas in this movie. <laughs> oh my. Um, so at one point, they're, they're talking about, you know, the, uh, Karen and Harry are at home um, just talking about kind of their plans coming up. And, um... Emma Thompson or Karen holds up uh, these dolls that she's giving to her friends, uh, to her kids' friends. And should she was like, you know, should we give her friend, her best friend, you know, the one that's dressed like, oh, I forget what the word was. And then she called the other one a dominatrix. Um, and actually, Emma Thompson is a huge, or, sorry, Dame Emma Thompson is a huge advocate for um, LGBT rights and has fought for them, especially in Scotland. And so she had a really kind of hard time um, making a joke of these dolls because they were actually Ken dolls in drag or, you know, in female clothing which that's just fine you can be who you are and wear what you want um but she she just had a difficult time holding up the dolls and kind of making a joke out of them but uh right. in the end she gave up and just did it like it's just it's a quick thing um and again you know um this was back in 2003, so, you know, um, the LGBT hadn't come as far as it has in 2021, but, you know, um, at, at that time, I guess, you know, men in women's clothing were still a joke? I don't know. Especially in Britain. 
Prince okay. had, I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people over there and the, the properness, you know, mm. that, that seems to have always been ingrained is, is there behind the times. You know, we, we have our, you know, our Trumpism and things like that and our, um, you know, any, any number of things that have kept us, you know, a hundred years out of date with the rest of the world uh, and Britain yeah. is the properness. That's, that's where this, um, huge contingent of, um, turf folk yeah. are coming from in Britain is the, oh, I'm completely fine with lesbian rights and gay rights, mm-hmm. but trans, no, 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 because that's a woman or a man. And you're like, oh God, please be quiet. Just please shut yeah. up. <laughs> but they've got this like very like strict properness. And I've I've heard that it's a big problem over there because they're so progressive in some ways, mm-hmm. but so not in this particular way. And it's it's very strange. Yeah. Well, I know um males dressing in uh men dressing in women's clothing has been a joke to them for a long time. Like even, you know, back in Monty Python, you know, and, um, or when, um, in Harry Potter with the, uh, ridiculous spell, um, changing Snape into, uh, when Neville changed Snape into, you know, his aunt and, you know, um, and everybody Alec laughs. Again, <laughs> you know, as Snape comes out, you know, dressed in a dress and a boa and a big old carpet bag. And, you know, it's it's so funny. And da 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 da. And, you know, um, I mean, at that point, he's, you know, combining a teacher he fears with an aunt that, you know, he um, finds funny, I guess, and put them together. So, I mean, that's that's a thing, but I know it's been a joke for a very long time in Britain. Um, but now in 2021, it's not. Um, it's just, it's, it's sad that that's a joke, you yep. know. Um, anyway, moving on, um, we're still talking about Harry, Karen, and Mia. And, um, Karen, uh, you know, Harry comes home at one point and Karen takes his jacket and, um, hangs it up and notices there's something in the pocket and she pulls it out and it's this necklace in a little box. And she's like, oh my gosh, he actually got me jewelry. And, um, a little later on before they head out to the um holiday play with the spider-man king and the nativity scene with all of the animals in the world um they each get to open a gift and um uh, karen sees a uh a wrapped you know um square box under the christmas tree and she's like i want to open that one and opens it and it's a cd set it is not the necklace um it is a cd set of joni mitchell who you know she she said earlier on that 
you know, she loves Joni Mitchell and this woman, you know, taught your cold wife how to, you know, I think it was love again or care again. Um, and I actually, I actually paused it to uh, speak with my partner on this because I'm like, I'm, I'm a little confused here. Um, cause I, I want to believe that, like, not that my partner is having an affair. I will, I will put that out there right now, but that's the kind of thing my partner would get me if I made, you know, a comment like that, like, oh my gosh, I love this artist. I've been listening to him forever. You know, they, they really make me feel you know, and I just, I love them. You know, it's, it's the type of thing my partner would do. And, uh, after Karen opens the CD set, like Harry's just sitting there, like with this big doofy smile on his face, like, oh yeah, you know, I paid attention. I got this for you. And, um, you know, a little later we see Mia in, her underwear because we obviously have to and she's wearing the necklace um and so you know i i'm like you know is he just a bumbling fool of a husband who you know thinks that this cd set is better and more because his wife would love it better in his opinion or I just I don't know and like did he just get the necklace just for his secretary for being a good secretary or to maybe placate her to be like okay here's a necklace instead of me calm down go away right I I like to think of it that way because the movie the movie in very cleverly never shows um him acting on this yeah. physically. Yep, it, and like the you closest know, they got was dancing at the holiday. Right. Party. He definitely is oblivious and his own worst enemy in causing it and not and allowing it to continue. Right. Yeah. But I I think I think you hit the nail on the head there because to me I thought his gift to her in any other context would actually be really sweet. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like I'm listening, and I think that's part of where her heartache in the scene comes from is she's got that, well, he actually is listening to me, and he actually does love me, but I know he didn't get that necklace for me. Yeah. And at so this it's, point, yeah. Yeah, at this point, she uh, she steps into the bedroom to kind of sort herself out, and um, she... She realizes that that necklace didn't go to her, and it's it's really difficult. And what's what's the case? What is going on? Like she knows that Mia is gunning for him, and he did buy a necklace, and it didn't go to her. So, I mean, where did it go? Um, and throughout the rest of the movie, I don't think Karen sees Mia at all. 
So can't confirm that, well, she can't confirm that it went to Mia, but for the rest of the movie, the, what, two times that we see Mia, she's wearing it. Um, right. And and I do like that the movie cleverly leaves that story um, realistically unfinished, right? Like, we see when when Alan Rickman's character is coming back to see his wife and kids, they're obviously separated, right? He's coming from somewhere else. But mm-hmm. they cleverly don't show him, like, coming to them from Mia's house. Yeah. You know, there's there's a, okay, there was a rift and there's shit for them to work out, but it's not necessarily, like, you know, him getting to be with young secretary and being happy, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's some realistic consequences to it all of, no, your life just is different now because of mistakes you made or things you didn't have the balls to stand up for and do, but, um, it shows them still trying to work through it, I guess, as a family unit. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yep. Um, Sorry about that. That's right. I had my phone off of vibrate for whenever you got back. Uh, but I didn't even <laughs> hear anything. Oh, okay. It was dinging because somebody else is messaging me. Um, and I was looking up. I was trying to find Karen's speech towards the end. Oh, it's a good one. Um, it is, but I could not find it. Um, and so they go to, you know, the holiday play that her kid is, what, first lobster in it. And, like, she had to make this lobster outfit. And um, as I said before, this is kind of the big culmination of all the characters are there. Um, and uh, afterwards, as as they're leaving the play... Um, Karen kind of talks to Harry and I think she feels comfortable doing so because they're not at home. Right. Basically. um, And not bringing this into the house where the kids are and whatnot. And the kids aren't around right now and there's not a ton of people. And she's like, you know, is this something I have to worry about? You know, is it... You know, a necklace with just a necklace, or is it a necklace with love, or is it a necklace with sex? You know, is this something I should be worried about? And um, for the role of her lovelorn character, uh, Emma Thompson has said that she drew on the immense heartbreak she experienced over her former husband, Kenneth Branagh's affair. Um back in like the mid 90s um wow yeah and that must have hit her so hard because if she even brought like an eighth of that to the screen like it it hits you it hits you real hard you can feel what she's going through it's it's tough stuff it really is um it's what you get when you cast someone like emma thompson you get Oh, you know, th- not that this movie doesn't have real emotion in it because it has a ton, but yes. I felt hers was just like, oh, I'm heartbroken. Like yeah. every word, it's just like, oh, 
Oh, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and she... She's so being the housewife mom. Because she, you know, while they're walking through this auditorium, you know, she's still... She's having this deep conversation and confronting her husband out about a possible affair. But she still has a moment to say hi and smile to somebody or, you know, keep a lookout for people around and where she has to turn it around at a moment's notice. And, you know, um, just just having being on that alert. And that's that's really, um, you know basically on the surface level saying everything okay and then having this deep conversation about your family falling apart it was amazing yeah and uh emma thompson is just is a goat she absolutely is uh if you don't know what goat is it's greatest of all time um i'm not talking about the barnyard animal with the horns no emma thompson is utterly amazing and I honestly can't think of anyone better for that role. Exactly. I completely agree. Yeah. So, well, well, we're sad. Um, we're actually going to jump over to the plot line of Sarah, Carl, and Michael. <laughs> this is... Probably the biggest, biggest um, heartache, heartbreak of the movie. Um, yeah. I literally have two notes on this, but uh, Sarah is seen throughout the entire movie, from the wedding reception all the way to you know. Um, I don't think she's at the. Uh, Christmas play, the holiday play. Um, but you know she's she's in and out throughout, and she's a uh, another um, employee under Alan Rickman's character Harry. Um, and I just have literally my first note for Sarah is Sarah is tragic. Like yeah. this this storyline is tragic. <laughs> Just the whole thing, like, there's a little bit of happy only to have more sad for Sarah. And it, uh, it's just, just everything with Sarah is heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, so, basically, um, Harry calls Sarah into his office and said, you know, how long have you worked here? And she's like, two years and some months and. He's like, okay, well, how long have you had a serious crush on Carl? And he's like, she's like, uh, two years and some months. And, um, you know, she's like, do you think he knows? Uh, Harry's like, yeah, we all do. Like, do something about it, because we're all sick of watching you moon over this guy. You know, everybody knows, you know, get your butt in gear. Um, and actually, Sarah is played by Laura Linney, who's a great actress. Or actor, she so is. Uh, in and of herself. And this part was so, so good. 
and so heartbreaking um, that actually when casting the part of Sarah, uh, writer and director Richard Curtis announced uh, or auditioned a great many British girls, but kept saying, I want someone like Laura Linney. And the casting director eventually snapped and said, oh, for fuck's sake, get Laura Linney then. And Linney auditioned <laughs> and got the parts. <laughs> and... Um, and something that I hadn't mentioned is Sarah basically has her cell phone glued to her hand. And that's because yep. she gets phone calls like every five minutes. And it's the same ringtone. And um, we we don't know who it is for most of the movie. And um, she always answers it. Hey, babe. Hi. Yeah. You know, things like that. And, um, again, you know, we don't know who's on the other end. It's just, hey, babe, hey, hon, hi, sweetie, um, things like that. It could be a partner. It could be a child. It could be anybody. We don't know. Um, and so we get to the holiday party, um, and she, uh, Carl actually comes up and asks her to dance. And um, they get a couple dances in and he accompanies her home. And um, he goes to kiss her goodnight and then they wind up kissing a little more. And she invites him upstairs and things start getting hot and heavy and her phone rings. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, they're, they're in a state of undress. And he goes, you know, would it help any? Like, if you didn't answer? And she's like, no, I have to. And um, basically her chance with Carl is blown more or less and it it really sucks because he wants to be there she wants to be there and um laura linney has even said that she wished her character didn't pick up the phone while carl was in her apartment yeah. like it just like even to slip a quickie in like you know do a little something good for yourself like I understand, you know, why she picked up the phone, but it just, it's frustrating, to say the least. And even she's frustrated with it, and there's a point where she's holding her dress up in front of her, sitting on the floor next to her bed on the phone, and he is sitting on the end of her bed in his boxer briefs, just kind of, like, hunched over, and even just that picture, like, if you took that still out of the movie, it it says a lot. Yeah. It says a ton right there. Um, and so we find out that um, uh, Sarah's brother, Michael, is in a um institution yeah um he he has some 
mental handicaps, uh, mental illnesses, that um, he needs to be in a safe place for. And, um, you know, some of, some of the calls she gets, you know, like, like when she's on the phone, she's like, I don't think we can get the Pope at this time of night, but yes, he's very good for, you know, exorcisms (laughs) and, you know, John Bon Jovi is too, like these, these nonsense thing, like calls and you know, to have to field them is just, you know, is just really, like, you just got to be open to anything. Um, and so she goes to visit her brother in this institution, and she's trying to talk to him, and at one point he tries to hit her, like, yeah. hard, and she catches his arm, because obviously she's used to this by now. And, you know, the, a staff member comes out and, like, tries to, like, calm him down and everything. And she's like, you know, don't do that, sweetheart. You know, don't do that. And, um, he's her strength, pretty much. Um, there's one point where, you know, she's done up her makeup at the office and, you know, just before she says bye to Carl for the day, and, you know, this is after their whole ordeal in her apartment, and she starts having, you know, kind of a breakdown and crying, and, you know, I don't, I think she calls him, um, I don't, I don't remember if he calls her or she calls him. Um, but she answers the phone and, you know, snaps right out of it. And that's her strength. Um, she's like, yep, I'm here for you. You know, anything you need, babe. Like, it just, uh, so much heartache in her storyline. Um, definitely makes you thankful for the lighter parts of, say, Billy Mac or the antics of, you know, Daniel and Sam. Right. And it, uh, it it really showcases the film's commitment to showing love at all levels, right? Because her yeah. her love for her brother that obviously loves her in his own way, but is severely, you know severely handicapped from being able to, you know, express it in the right way. But she's still there for him. She still loves him. And they yeah. still hug on Christmas Eve. Yep. You know, and it's like, it's so heartbreaking because it's like, this is keeping her from having other love. Yeah. But it, it trumps it because this is my brother. And it's, it's so heartbreaking because it's, it mirrors that th- this movie, even in the lighter stuff is, you know, it's all about real life situations. Like stuff yeah. isn't always going to go. And the actors just play it so well. Yep. Yes, they do. Um, actually, one part I didn't talk about, which was actually shown probably the most in ads and commercials and whatnot, is um, after Sarah and Carl kind of make out in the doorway, uh, before she invites him up to her room, she goes around the corner and goes onto the steps and does this, like, oh my gosh, happy shaking dance 
and like she's so happy she's about to burst like and there's just so much emotion just in this little like happy dance that she does only to have it come crashing down is like just even more heart-wrenching yeah i I loved that little bit the okay i'm good now (laughs) yep okay that that's done um come up to my room in about 10 seconds so i just yeah i she's just got such the highs and lows just in basically those two one scene like one scene but it's cut i don't i don't know if it i don't know if there's a spot in between the two i can't remember um between you know the happy dance and then her running upstairs and then the whole situation but um yeah so another fantastic actor um whether it be love actually or star wars is laura linney yes (laughs) um now we're gonna move on to our last uh couple plot line of the movie and that's david and natalie um david is hugh grant the prime minister and natalie is basically like an aide um uh just kind of there to bring him you know tea and cookies and folders when he needs them and whatnot um and actually when deciding to cast the part of the prime minister david uh sir anthony hopkins michael gambon gambon uh and michael crawford were possible candidates but they were all actually busy so uh hugh hugh grant got the role um I don't think I've enjoyed Hugh Grant in a role as much as I enjoyed him in this. <laughs> he was he was fantastic and and I'm so happy. I would have loved to have seen Anthony Hopkins in this role. Mm-hmm. You know, I, but there's just something about Hugh Grant's um Hugh Grant has a he has the ability to play old and older and stoic, you know, and he's a Brit, right? He's just got yeah. that about him. But there was a there was a young childishness about his approach to being the prime minister that I mm-hmm. think was really playful in, in his relationship with Natalie that I think really sold the character. And I don't think those other guys would have been able to pull it off without it feeling like an old guy dating a younger girl. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree. Um, looking at, you know the the other candidates i i really agree with that um it it makes me think of like old hollywood where you had right. you know Cary grant with um audrey hepburn you know or just you know may december relationships like this like guys who could be her father or even grandfather at times you know supposedly in this relationship with this young girl and it's like that's that's not that's not how that works um but i i really enjoyed hugh grant in this role um it i feel like i feel like he 
really felt new to the prime minister position. Exactly. Like, you know, we first see him come out of a car and, you know, he turns around to the fans and is like waving with both hands and he's walking in talking to another assistant. He's like, I really need to work on my wave. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so what exactly do we do here? That I thought that was great. What did, what do we do here? Yeah. Um, and so he's going down, you know, a line of a few people who do different things around the, uh, house for him um i don't know at yeah i think that's the house that he's staying in um i i would think it's relatable to the white house it Uh, is and i and i believe i don't know if they're filming it in the actual place the prime minister lives but it it looked to be the same exact set as the prime minister's home in black mirror oh okay um all right. We don't need to go into detail on this very pleasant podcast about what happens <laughs> in that episode of Black Mirror, but um, yeah, I need to watch that show again. It's, it's brutal, <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> yeah, the oh my gosh, the episode with Bryce Dallas Howard, I love it so much. Jodie Foster directed that episode. That one too. Yeah, she directed oh, too. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the first, the first note I have here is verbal diarrhea. Um, (laughs) so when, uh, David gets to meet Natalie, she's, you know, the third one down this line and, uh, you know, she's like, you know, I had a dream that I would, you know, mess this all up. And she said like, Oh shit. And he's like, well, at least you didn't say fuck or we'll all be screwed. And she's like, yeah, at least I didn't fuck it up. Oh shit. <laughs> and um, that, that really kind of gets his attention on her. Like, you know, she, she has flaws too. She's not just this pretty girl. Um, And so as we're, you know, kind of cutting in and out, you know, we see, David, you know, as the prime minister, and um, he is having a meeting with the U.S. president, played by Billy Bob Thornton. Who played it to wonderful scumbag levels, I gotta say. He rocked in this role. Yeah, but when you first see him, you're like, what? You have to do a triple take. Yeah, you're like, Billy Bob Thornton? Really? Like, really? Like, what, Richard Gere wasn't available? Like, (laughs) um, so yeah, I I guess I just thought it was a really odd casting choice for Billy Bob. But I also kind of feel like with this being a mostly British movie, they just kind of took more or less who they could get. Um, to play the U.S. president because he does have um, a reasonably smaller part. Um, but there's, you know, he, he shows up a couple of times. Um, and actually, Billy Bob Thornton accepted his part in the film without even reading the script. Uh, he was actually so flattered by the accompanying letter asking him to be part of the ensemble that he was like, yep, I'm in. So that's that's kind of cool, you know, that they sent him such a nice letter. He's like, sure, you know, I'll do it. 
Um, but there's there's a point where, you know, David and the U.S. president are in a meeting kind of going over what they need and what they want. And, you know, David kind of agreeing to a number of things. And then uh, later on in David's office, you know, he has to step out to get something. And Natalie is bringing, I want to say, like, coffee in. Um or maybe some files. She's bringing something into the office. It's always coffee or files. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And um, when David returns, he sees, you know, Natalie and the U.S. president very close. Um, they're not in, like, a romantic embrace or anything. But they're just, they're in very close proximity to each other. And... Natalie just looks straight up shaken. Like, she was not enjoying whatever was going on at all. And from the time when David finds them to the time that she walks out the door, she just looks shaken and almost traumatized. Uh, maybe, Maybe not to that level, but you could see that she did not like what happened. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, Chris. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she she is absolutely shaken. Um, and so he actually has Natalie um, moved around. So he doesn't pretty much just doesn't see her anymore. Um, because he, at this point, he's like, you know what, she's just a distraction. I don't, you know, I need to concentrate on other things. And, um, he has his meeting with the U.S. president on air the next day on TV and stands up to him and is like, you know what, no, you know, Britain is really great, and we're home to all of these wonderful things, and we're not just going to roll over and give you everything you want, more or less, in a nutshell. Um, And the people of Britain are very happy with that, and the U.S. president goes home. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, that that whole speech was really great. Um, Yeah, they... They brought up Harry Potter, and again, this is 2003 before J.K. Rowling outed herself as a turf and horrible person. And when Harry Potter was still fantastic, and when people could connect over it. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, may not be the best speech in 2021, but in 2003 it was. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, moving on. Um, I had a friend at one point say, if it's a movie of Jess's, it's going to either have a dance break or a song, mm-hmm. like, sung in it. And, you know... um, going faithful with that quote on my friend. Uh, Hugh Grant does have a dance scene in this movie. And it's wonderful. (laughs) 
it's really great and it's the kind of dancing you would do around your house it's not you know he's not breaking into a waltz or you know break dancing and doing the helicopter down the hall or anything like that you know he's he's shaking his butt and you know just dancing around like you know just silly dancing that you would at home when you hear a good song on and um, actually, Hugh Grant hated the dancing scene because he didn't think a prime minister would do something like that. Um, I I really loved it. You know, it just it shows he's human. You know, and it it's a testament to him as an actor because even though he hated the scene, he nailed it. Right? Yeah. It it's so playful and fun and just really well done. Yeah. Well, and the prime minister is a job. You know, when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's a job. Whereas, you know, being human, you know, um, motion creates emotion. And so dancing around like that, you hear a song that really gets you rocking, have fun with it. Dance around. Enjoy it. You know, Um, so I just I think it was really, you know, a great addition. And he's dancing down the halls and dancing down the stairs and stops when you know somebody actually comes across him and he's like oh i'm supposed to be serious now but it just (laughs) it was just really great and um so towards the end he uh david is going through some christmas cards and uh there's one from natalie basically saying you know i'm sorry for what happened but since it's christmas you know i'm all yours i loved that that was so sweet it was and uh he has his driver uh bring the car up and he goes to the dodgy end of the street that she lives (laughs) on which he had her clarify earlier which one is the dodgy end and i love british slang that what you're right that is pretty dodgy (laughs) yeah I mean, even even being American, I use, you know, some British slang in my regular vocab just because it's fun. And, you know, just like other languages, they have words that we don't or, you know, words that I would rather use instead of, you know, hey, I'm short on money. I'd rather say, hey, I'm skint. I'm skint right now. You know, so I like it. So basically, he goes down to the dodgy end, and he doesn't know her address, which I would think he would have it on file. Um, just, just a thought, but uh, that's not something they did in the movie. So he's going door to door to try and find Natalie, and um, he's just he's running into all these interesting characters and at one point there's some kids that answer the door that's like you know are you carol singers and like he's he's forced so good it's so good yeah and he starts singing uh good king once a lot and like apparently his driver is this amazing baritone like (laughs) he's even shocked by his driver's singing it's it's great it is. And the kids are just dancing around, you know, not knowing who this guy is at the door that, like, he's one of the most important people in England. Um, <laughs> and, 
And, uh, you know, a little, a little while down the way, he actually, um, winds up at Mia's door, who, she's still wearing the necklace, and he's, you know, getting tired and a little frustrated, and he's like, is Natalie here? And she's like, well, no, but she lives next door, which, oh my gosh, hope, finally. And he goes next door, and her entire family is in the hallway getting ready to leave. Nice and efficient. Yeah. Yep. And so um, they call her down and uh, there's one point where her dad calls her plumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this is kind of something running through the movie is that um, she's she's a thicker girl. You know, she's curvy um she's beautiful she's gorgeous she's absolutely gorgeous and um you know she she fills out her clothes nicely and uh the wardrobe department did a really great job with her and um like at one point you know he asks one of the other uh workers in the uh in his office like he's like oh would you say she's chubby and she's like oh she's got a pretty sizable ass and like you know her i guess ex-boyfriend said her legs were getting as thick as tree trunks and it's awful it just it's like ugh, just stop like this girl is gorgeous like knock it off i mean yeah she is plus sized but Hardly. And... I remember. I remember thinking back on all of the flack Kate Winslet caught in Titanic for looking like a normal-sized human being and not like a uh, string bean, yeah. and like the fact that like one calling someone fat isn't derogatory, like unless you make it be right. Like, don't. Yeah. Wh- why would that be a bad thing? Like, someone's beautiful, they're beautiful, but she also just looked beautiful. And I remember thinking back, being like 14 years old when that came out, and that was the joke, is, oh, Kate Winslet's so fat in that movie. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? I never even heard that. Yeah, it was like this, because she didn't look like 1997's Hollywood actresses. I mean, they put her in a corset for crying out loud. What more do they want? Right? Ugh. Just ugh. Yep. Ugh. Skinny isn't everything. Well, I mean, just look look like yourself. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. That's the way I look at it. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, and so David is like, hey, I need to talk to you about some business. And uh, she's like, well, I need to go to this school. Well, she's even trying to get out of going to the school play, but her mother aunt i don't know is like oh you know you should really go to this all the kids are doing it and we worked so hard on the costumes and basically guilting them into it um and so you know just uh just making him i mean give her a ride around the corner to the school um basically awesome yeah it 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 really is and uh and so 
they're they're sitting there trying to have a conversation with a kid dressed as an octopus <laughs> sitting in between them. So it's it's not not the easiest time. And then um this this school is literally right around the corner from her house, so they don't get any time to talk. And uh she's like, Okay, well, you know, I gotta go into this, but you should come with. And he's like, no, I can't go in there. It would be a nightmare. It's all about the kids. And she's like, well, just give me a minute. And winds up sneaking him in backstage. And they watch the play from backstage. Um, and uh, they run into David's sister, Karen, who who says, uh, and she she gives him a big hug, which... She really needs at this yep. point. This was just before her conversation with Harry. Um, and basically, you know, says, oh, well, just watch out for my brother. 20 years ago, you'd be just his type. Oh. <laughs> it's brutal. And, like, just, oh, my word. We need to take a second to talk about Hugh Grant's facial expressions they're great like they're great from this comment like and he's left going like what like i'm not too old for her like and just when he sees natalie like he kind of lights up and you know the he gets a little shock on his face when you know she has the verbal diarrhea and it's just <laughs> his face facial expressions are so great um they're just, genuine they are, you know, he's, he's, despite his past, um, his, in his real life. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's, that's still, one of the reasons why I rarely seek him out because yeah. of that, but he really he, is fantastic in this. He's, he's a wonderful actor. I, I am kind of glad he got out of the silly rom-coms. Yeah. Of the 90s. Um, however, I do have to say, I do have a soft spot for Mickey Blue Eyes. I like, love that movie. Oh my gosh, that movie makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's considered a bomb, but I just, I love it. I think it's so flippin' funny. Um, but just his, his facial expressions throughout the entire thing, he just did such a great job. Um, and at the end, they're at the school play watching from backstage, and eventually the feeling takes over, and David and Natalie start making out in the wrong spot, and the curtain gets pulled on them, and they are right smack dab in the middle of the ending of the school play, which is this big, like, Merry Christmas sign, and they're just standing there making out. That's um, great. <laughs> So it's kind of like, surprise, here's the prime minister. And he's like, just uh, smile and wave. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, and after like 30 seconds, he, you know, pulls her off stage. Um, but it is, it is really great. And I do love this movie. And this was my contender for non-holiday, holiday films. Um as I said, it's my favorite adult holiday movie. Um, and I actually do have a little note here. I have a couple of notes uh, after the ending. 
So um, for many years after the movie's release, viewers have argued about whether Harry actually cheated on his wife, Karen, with his co-worker, Mia. Now, in December 2015, Emma Freud, who was the movie's script editor and is the life partner of writer and director Richard Curtis, confirmed on her Twitter account that it was indeed a full-fledged sexual affair and not just an inappropriate but non-physical flirtation, as some viewers assumed it was. Uh, Freud also confirmed that Karen and Harry stayed married after Karen discovered the affair, but, quote, uh, but home isn't as happy as it once was. Wow. And, um, and, you know, going all the way until 2015, from when it was released in 2003, you know, not clearing it up. As I said, you know, that was a point that I had to pause it, you know, even to talk about it with my partner. And my partner was completely on the side that he was totally having an affair. And I'm like... I really think he's just a bumbling husband. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, for them to come out and say that it was a full-fledged affair, it's, it's nice that they stayed married. Because um, in the epilogue, you know, Harry does come back and uh, Karen has some very spiky, overly gelled hair. Um but just, you know, they, they kind of check in with, with each other. Hey, how you doing? How's it going? You know, and they head out to get some ice cream. But, you know, it's it's very obvious that things aren't as they were. Um, so that was put to rest. And my other note here is actually in 2020 or 2020, Dua Lipa and Jimmy Fallon performed a cover of Christmas is All Around Me on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. (laughs) And it was solid gold shit. (laughs) I know, their their cover of it is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Well, we will definitely put the uh, link to it in the notes um, so you can go check it out. I mean, Dua Lipa is pretty fantastic in and of herself. And I know Jimmy Fallon has a pretty decent voice. So He does, and he has a lot of fun. That's mm-hmm. my favorite things Jimmy Fallon does is just goofing off with musicians because he's he's great at it. Yeah. Yep. He really is. And he, you know, he brings the funny. He's a funny he does. guy. He, he brings enthusiasm. And I like yeah. that about him is he's he genuinely seems to be happy and excited about being around the people he's around. It comes off genuine instead of, you know, like, oh, and our guest tonight is. Who who's this again? <laughs> you know, like you well, get with a lot of late night shows. He's also not afraid to be the butt of the joke yep. either. Like he doesn't get mad about it. So it's all good. Now, Chris, did you have an MVP for this movie? I do. I do. And I am scrolling to that section because I like <laughs> to edit. Um, Sorry, I, I got caught up reading your notes there. My uh, MVP for this movie, and um, you, you know, we'll also get to hear um, Stefan's MVPs um, and that person's in this section as well for this film. But um, I had two that I had picked because I knew that somebody else was going to pick one, and they were Sam and Daniel. And um, it just it was so striking to me as a new father. Um, you know, I have I have a son who's about to turn three years old, and as 
um, someone who lost a father. It's not often you get movies, especially movies that were made before the last five to ten years, that have good, non-toxic father-son relationships in them. Yeah. Um, there's usually either a bit of, like, too much machismo, you know, or too much, like, old-fashioned. Like, it's okay. So what if I neglect him and hit him a little bit? It's fine. And it's like, okay. I, I don't need that. And Daniel... For being Liam Neeson, who we know now as being, you know, the rough and tumble, you know, like working man James Bond, right? Almost like in his uh-huh. films. For him to be so vulnerable and the son to also be written so vulnerable and realistic and them to be there for each other, even when they're not blood relatives, right? Yeah. Um, it blew me away. And so I could have gone with either character. I thought their relationship and their story was adorable. But. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to go with Daniel because he's, you know, he's a hurt, damaged human being that is still trying to get by and still reaches out and talks to the people that he needs to when he needs to and is is really trying to be the best person he can and isn't afraid to admit when um, when he's wrong. You know, I, yeah. I love those conversations with Sam, you know, where he's not. He's not necessarily being the most proper dad, but he's being a real dad. You know, like yeah. talking to the kid about, well, you know, if if Claudia Schiffer ever comes here, we're just going to have sex all over this place. So you're going to have to leave, <laughs> you know, or the kid telling him the story about being in love and, you know, giving him all the data. And he's trying to be so supportive. Realistic, he goes, well, then I guess we're both just fucked now, are we? <laughs> and I just thought it was wonderful. And I just didn't expect that out of Neeson. Um not not that I didn't think he was a great actor. He was just so off casting for him mm-hmm. to be so vulnerable and, and small and broken. And I and I really appreciated that about him. Yeah. Yeah. I it was really nice to see him in such a different role. And, you know, to see him not only grieving, but trying to help this stepson well grieving like it he almost like took it on as like a project to try and help this kid basically get through get through his love sickness and get the girl exactly yeah so what about you? Who's your MVP? My MVP is one Dame Emma Thompson. Um, exactly. I just, her range in this movie, for one, uh, her acting and emotional range in this movie is phenomenal. Um, but I think she has the most connections in the movie as well. Um being, you know, Harry's wife and a friend of Daniel's and David's sister. And, you know, she she's just kind of there for everybody, it seems. Um, yeah, she is she is spread herself thinly everywhere. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, she. There's a couple of times where she's trying to call her brother and um he's too 
busy, he can't take the call, et cetera, et cetera. And so finally, when, you know, at the end, she gets to see him and gives him this big hug that honestly, she really needs is just, it's, it's a really great, like, extra piece in there. Um, I, I feel like she's part of the glue that holds the plots together. Right. She's, she's the whole movie's mother. Yeah. Instead of, instead of just her one sequence. Yeah. Um, like, you know, she's providing emotional support to Daniel and, you know, she's trying to keep, you know, the family together with David and, oh, just all of it and trying to keep her own family together and keeping an eye on this, you know, seductress in her husband's office and just, you know, everything, just everything. And as I said, she is a goat, greatest of all time. She is amazing. She has been acting for a very long time, um, basically longer than I've been alive. Uh, she started in 1982. Um, she's been in a ton of things. Um, she was in, you know, Much Ado About Nothing. She was in uh, Junior. She was in Sense and Sensibility. She was on the Ellen TV series in an episode as her as Emma. Um, she was a voice in Treasure Planet. She, you know, was in Love Actually, obviously. Um, she was in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban as Professor Trelawney. There we go. Mm -hmm. uh, one of she was Nanny McPhee. Uh, in one of my favorite movies that is very close to my heart, Stranger Than Fiction, she was the author, Karen Eiffel. She was in I Am Legend. She was in Pirate Radio. She, you know, was in a few other Harry Potter movies. She was in Saving Mr. Banks. She was in just so many things. Like, you know, even something like Bridget Jones's Baby. She was a doctor yep. in that. She was the voice of Mrs. Potts in the live-action Beauty and the Beast. She was in Johnny English Strikes Again as the Prime Minister herself. Um, and she is currently uh, the Baroness in Cruella right mm. now, which is rocking the box office. Yeah, people and, love it. And coming up, it's in pre-production right now, but they are redoing Matilda, and she is Miss Trunchbull. No shit. No. Like, she's got 91 credits. Like, this woman can do anything. She's so fantastic. And so that's oh. why she is my MVP for this movie. Uh, for Love Actually, my that actor is Andrew Lincoln. Uh... Hello, The Walking Dead is what he's best known for. Uh, my sister, who loves Love Actually, actually saw him, well, not, not in person, but she saw my mom and I watching an episode of The Walking Dead, and she was like, he looks so familiar. I'm like, yeah, he's the guy with the cards in, on, uh, in Love Actually. And my MVP is Sam. Uh, I think he is just so adorable, and, you know, he 
went for the girl. You know, he just just overcame his insecurities and just went for it. And that's very admirable at that age. Yeah, well, hope you'll love this episode, and I'll be back soon. Now, uh, Chris, how did the movie fare with the critics? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we talked about before we went into this movie how how I had never seen it, and it's one of your favorite adult holiday films. And <laughs> I had always known in, in the circles I ran in that this film was always really well respected. Um, mm-hmm. I think it it hit much better with audiences, I guess, than it did with critics at first, but I never really paid attention to the critical score because this movie was completely off my radar. I just knew from everyone <laughs> renting it that they were like, Love Actually is like the best holiday film ever or yes. the best romantic comedy ever. And yes. so I'm glad I finally get to see it. But um, Rotten Tomatoes, and again, this movie came out post the existence of Rotten Tomatoes, so there's no change in minds of critics that we have to go on. But yeah. it got a 64%. And, you know, 64% for a movie as big and as all over the place as the storyline is for this, I, you know, that's not terrible, right? You know, for yeah. for example, the majority of Adam Sandler's filmography gets 20 to 40%, <laughs> right? And I still feel like some of those are are fantastic, even though mm-hmm. some of them are just god-awful. But um, Oh, man, crit- speaking of Adam Sandler movies, I introduced Steph into You Don't Mess with the Zohan. Oh, the Zohan. Oh, my gosh, that that's movie's so of- funny. I think that could be one of his best, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think the gag really works. Um, <laughs> it's so but, good. Yeah, it is what it is. Uh, I do love You Don't Mess with the Zohan. That, there's so yeah. many random gags in that that are just great. <laughs> um, so the the um, consensus from Rotten Tomatoes at that 64% is they, they call it a sugary tale overstuffed with too many stories. Still, the cast charms. And... I guess that's a reasonable thing other than I don't think it's overstuffed. I think it feels like it is when you're mm-hmm. like looking at, wow, we have to cover all this ground. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, when you really look at it, um, it, it all, it, it flies once you're watching it and you just get, Oh yeah. Right in. Um, Metacritic, which is, you know, a, a different thing. Um, it's again, you know, a, of culmination of different critical scores. It's a weighted average score of 55 out of a hundred based on 41 critics. Now rotten tomatoes is based on 224. Um, oh. It indicated mixed or average reviews, but audience is pulled by cinema score. So this is how people, when the film was in theaters, that got pulled, gave the film a B plus. So that's a really oh. good rating, um, especially for a, an R rated comedy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Todd McCarthy of Variety called it a roundly entertaining romantic comedy, a doggedly cheery confection, and a package that feels as luxuriously appointed and expertly tooled as a Rolls Royce, and predicted (laughs) that its cheeky wit, impossibly attractive cast, and sure-handed professionalism, along with its all-encompassing romanticism, should make this a highly popular early holiday attraction for adults on both sides of the pond. And he was right. You know, people adore this movie. Yeah. Um, Michael Atkinson of the Village Voice called it Love British Style, handicapped slightly <laughs> by corny circumstance and populated by colorful neurotics. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Roger Ebert, who, again, you know, 
we just went through Die Hard gave that film a two star review and changed his tune 20 years later gave Love Actually three and a half out of four stars describing okay. it as a belly flop into the sea of romantic comedy the movie's only flaw is also its virtue it's jammed with characters stories warmth and laughs until at times Curtis seems to be working from a checklist of obligatory movie love situations and doesn't want to leave anything out it feels like a gourmet meal that turns into a hot dog eating contest <laughs> I love that no because because he, he's basically you know I don't agree but he's basically going like you, you go in thinking it's going to go in one direction but it just it 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 pulls you in and makes you love it. Even when you're looking at it and going, this is a bit silly. I disagree. But Ebert, what I've always loved about Ebert's reviews is he's able to admit that he finds something's flawed, but it still works for him Mm -hmm. and he'll still give things a good review. Susan Waloxnia of USA today. I hope I pronounced that right. Wrote Curtis's multi-tiered cake of a comedy slathered in eye candy icing and set mostly in London at Christmas served sundry slices of love, sad, sweet, and silly in all their messy, often surprising glory. Um, Owen Gleiberman of entertainment weekly gave the movie a B and called it a toasty star packed ensemble comedy. That's going to make a lot of holiday romantics feel very, very good watching it. I feel felt cozy and charmed myself. Nev Pierce yeah. of the BBC avoided it four out of a possible five stars, calling it a vibrant romantic comedy, warm, bittersweet and hilarious. That is lovely. Actually prepare to be. Smitten. Yeah. I, I do have to say, you know, a couple of these uh, reviewers talk about the cast, like still the cast charms. And quite honestly, with pretty much anybody else in these roles, like it wouldn't have worked. Right. Like I, this cast just was so genius and so perfect. I don't know if everybody was their first pick, um, but I just, I literally can't, think of anybody that could be changed out or who would be better for any specific role in this movie. Right. Um, I'm going to leave out AO Scott's review because um, it's long and he didn't like it. And he just trashes everything we said was great. And I disagree because he, he, he's known as a critic that goes for, if he doesn't like something, he goes for headlines. You know, he says the film underuses and trashes Emma, Emma Thompson's brilliant acting and range. No, Uh, I I don't agree. Um, Laura Linney is cast as a frustratingly lonely do-gooder with nothing else going on with her character. All of these things are very wrong. Um, Peter Travers, again, gave it two out of four stars, and he said there are laughs laced with feelings here, but the deft screenwriter Richard Curtis dilutes the impact by tossing in more and more stories. As a director, Curtis can't seem to rein in his writer. He ladles sugar over the eager-to-please love actually to make it go down easy, forgetting that sometimes it just makes you gag. Again, I disagree, but... It's cool to see different takes, right? Although critics' reviews for Love Actually were mixed, the film is more popular among audiences and has ever been discussed as an arguable modern-day Christmas classic. Christopher Orr of The Atlantic remains negative towards the work and described as the least romantic movie of all time. What? (laughs) Considering its ultimate message to be, it's probably best if you give up on love altogether and get on with the rest of your life. I don't think he watched the film. Quite frankly. Yeah. I know. 
So no. it's quite interesting to see how different, but again, in all the circles I run in, this is touted as being one of the best romantic comedies ever made. And like I called it at the beginning, it's like, it's as if there were 20 movies with these characters in it before, and this was the Avengers, you know? Yeah. They, they, it just seemed like I've met all of these people before, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, we talked about this movie running the gamut in different types of love. You know, not just, you know, oh, I love you, let's get married. Right. So. How did yeah. it do on the social media battle polls? Um, well... If we go over to Twitter and check it out, I pull up our uh, Twitter page. We are Fighting Films Podcast or at Films Fighting. And we did do a Twitter poll for this one. And Die Hard kind of stomped all over Love, actually. 85 to 15%. It kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. You know. The, the the more the point of doing this one was just to fight against the concept that these aren't <laughs> holiday films, right? So yeah. this is almost like the films versus, versus the preconceived notions. But, you know, I, I think they really hold their own. I have a hard time voting, even though I, you know, I'm predisposed to liking Die Hard more because I just think Die Hard's an incredible movie. But um, I just don't think um, there's uh you still there? Yeah. Okay, sorry, my, my phone did something weird that messed up my computer. Um, okay. I just don't think, uh, I don't think there's going to be a hol- holiday season where I don't think about both of these, right? There's, yeah. I, I can't, I can't go a day without, I feel it in my fingers, <laughs> I feel it in my toes. You That's going to be mean? your ringtone soon. Right, it is. <laughs> I just, I have to wonder if, um, similar to your case, Chris, if maybe more people have just seen Die Hard and not Love Actually. Right. Yeah. That's probably true. It's just a thought. And, you know, I, I understand, you know, people have their opinions and they have every right to them. Um, but yes, this was the battle of the non-holiday holiday movie. Um, and we actually had a comment, uh, David Fleming says, but they're both Christmas movies. Yep. Um, (laughs) so, you know, it's, it's been a long time argument on both of them. And, uh, as I said before, Love Actually is one of my favorite holiday movies. Die Hard is my sister-in-law's favorite holiday movie. So... I'm leaning on the side that they're holiday movies. Yep, I agree. I agree <laughs> completely. So with that then, um, you know, we just talked about two great holiday films that the Fighting Films podcast is adding our stamp to saying, yes, these are holiday films, and damn all of you that think differently. But <laughs> you know where to reach us. You know how to contact Jess. And just tell them, again, if they don't know, where they can find us so they can argue with us about it. Well, you can get a hold of me at fightingfilmspod at gmail.com. And you can get a hold of us on Facebook at fightingfilmspod. And you can get a hold of us on Twitter at fightingfilmspodcast or at filmsfighting, where we post a poll every Monday 
this week is actually a little different kind of poll. Um, we are on Instagram where I like to post little uh, extras, whether it be, you know, um, celebrities of the movies we are talking about that we've met or, you know, if we're just, you know, hanging out or maybe some DVDs I got in the mail that might be on the show later. Wink, wink. Um, but besides all of those, we do have a Patreon, um, and we are Fighting Films Podcast on Patreon. Um, we do currently have three tiers, um, so, you know, if you just want to toss us a buck per month, you do get early access into the show with extra content. Um, we do have our $5 lightweight tier. So, you know, maybe you actually like listening to us and check us out every week and enjoy, you know, the movies that we're talking about. You can join the lightweight tier and you do get the early access and the extra content. Plus, you get a patron shout out. And our current highest tier is the welterweight tier at $10 per month, where you get the early access, you get the extra content, you get the patron shout out, and you get to pick one uh, theme for an episode uh, of your choice. So you get to pick the theme for one episode, and we will pick movies, and then we'll talk about them, and we will, you know, talk about why you picked this uh, theme and just have lots of fun with it and thank you so much to our current patrons uh, uh, Karen and Brandt thank you so so much we love you we and love we, you we Actually. love that you love us <laughs> so that's where you can find us absolutely so thank all of you for listening um we hope you really enjoyed our takes on the holiday films that people don't necessarily agree are holiday films this has been chris this is jess and stefan is going to be back with us soon after a much needed vacation until next time let's keep those films fighting and bye don't guys don't forget to rate and review bye